Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network. It is a bunch of great literary sites and you can advertise on those sites if you want to reach book people on the internet. Does this make sense? Go to litbreaker.com and find out how you can advertise on sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Electric Literature, the list goes on. Litbreaker.com, Litbreaker. It's an online advertising network for bookish people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person. Just hey everybody, one how's it going? I'm Brad right. Listy here right. in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. This is the Other People Podcast. Oh my God. It's here. You made it. I was gone last week. I took a holiday, uh, 4th of July week. I just felt like it was time for a bit of a summer pause. I hope that's okay. I'm back. I have a great show for you. Scott McClanahan is the guest. His new novel, The Sarah Book, is now available from Tyrant Books. It is the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Scott McClanahan back on this podcast almost five years to the day after his uh, original appearance. And uh, what's interesting is that I had Julia Fierro on the program in uh, episode 472, and now I have Scott here in episode 473. And I want to say in both cases, uh, these individuals were making a second appearance on the show uh, like four and five years to the day after their original appearance or something like that. What I'm getting at is that there was a symmetry happening. There is a symmetry happening. That is the uh, stage that we're in now with this program. Almost six years this podcast has uh, been happening. (laughs) Six years I've uh, been documenting human existence in some form. kind of hard to believe. And, you know, what better way to spiral in the direction of uh, year seven of the Other People podcast than to spend an hour catching up with Scott McClanahan in the feverish depths of summer. The Sarah book uh, feels like Scott's breakout novel. Rapturous critical acclaim. 
And, uh, you know, the cult has been building for a while, and this book, I think, is going to push him over the top. So there's a lot happening right now. Uh, I'm recording this on Monday, July 10th. It's late at night. And for those of you who follow my Other People Twitter feed, for those of you who listen to this program regularly, especially in recent days, you, you probably know what I'm obsessed with. You know that uh, there are certain things I'm fixated on. It's nothing unusual. I think a lot of us are fixated on it. But what I've decided is that despite the fact that major things are happening tonight, July 10th, I feel like they, they should be major. The question is, will they be received as major by those in a position to make consequential, uh, consequential re- uh, decisions about them? But I feel like major, <laughs> I feel like major things are happening. And my point, ladies and gentlemen, is that I'm not going to talk about it explicitly here on this program because uh, I feel like, do we really need to do that right now? Late at night on a Monday night. Can't we just do a show? It's all about Scott McClanahan. It's all about the Sarah book. Give a, you, you know, give everybody an hour to not think about what I'm talking about but won't mention explicitly right now. It's not that I'm making some sort of blanket rule. It's just for this episode, for this time in our lives. <laughs> Let me just not talk about it for once. Let me just not mention it. Get into the weeds. Pontificate. Offer my opinion. be publicly confused outraged I've been looking at puppies on the uh, internet compulsively lately I feel like I should tell you that (laughs) Uh, I talk about this with Scott too but I feel like there's something happening to me psychologically where uh, I now need to look at puppies on the internet as a way to like reflexively counterbalance whatever else is happening in the world and in my brain. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
So let's get started with the show, shall we? Let's get to Scott McClanahan. His new novel, The Sarah Book, is the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Really happy to have Scott back on the program and to get to shine a light on his new novel. And I should tell you as well that there was some uh, technological difficulties in our recording process, and we actually had to do this conversation twice. We talked on Sunday, uh, yesterday for an hour, and uh, that recording, there was a problem with it. And so I emailed Scott and I explained the situation. He was nice enough to talk to me again today, a second time for another hour. And you're about to hear that conversation. And the good news is uh, it's way better. We captured lightning in a bottle. I think this is a masterpiece. Uh, Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Scott McClanahan and his new novel, One More Time, is called The Sarah Book. I mowed the grass today. Uh, which is like a big deal. I know this, this is going to be a fascinating, a fascinating podcast if uh, we just talk about mowing the grass. Julia like makes fun of me because I always tell her all the time that I need to mow the grass. Like it's this weird sort of tick that I that I have. Uh, but today I actually did mow the grass. How long do you let it go? Huh? Like, does, do you let it get pretty long? Uh, yeah, I'm like Ross. You know, Ross Perot. He like had his hair cut like every two days or something. Like I'm, 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 I'm sort of like that with my lawn mowing. Uh, there's something that's uh, like a chief, like a level of uh, of zen. Uh, like a week, I would say like a week. And- I would, I would probably. I don't know. This could we could probably tie this into like the sadism of my father making me mow the grass time and time again and doing it right. Maybe that's maybe that's maybe that's where I where I get it. So Well, so wait, are you on a riding mower or are you push mower? No, I'm I'm a push mower guy. Yeah, I like to like to get my work out uh, through the through the push mower. I'm not sounding very cool starting off talking about mowing the grass. No, but I find this interesting cuz uh, you know, there's something very satisfying about getting it right and getting those straight rows. Yeah, I think so too. I've heard other people say that. I saw a meme like the other day where somebody was like making fun of that idea, but but like I to I totally uh I totally believe in that. Well and the the other thing too is that there's you know, you got uh young you know, when you're a young man and your and your father is making you mow the grass or you're mowing lawns for money or whatever, it's a little bit more onerous. But then I noticed there's something about uh men in middle age that where mowing the lawn becomes some kind of expression of uh, relief somehow from the struggles of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just the stories popped in my head. I also teach like English, and the best English 101 narrative descriptive essay, and this will tie into some of these things we talked about last time, was this one kid. I can't remember what his name was. I want to say his name was Ricky. But anyway, he his essay was about when he was on a riding lawnmower, and he worked for, like, a tree service company, and I guess he was riding the lawnmower up on the side of the hill, and that's always a problem here in West Virginia. Like, nobody's, you know, yard's just completely flat. And he was riding it up on a hill, and it flipped over on him and cut off his foot. Oh, shit. Yeah. But then that was, that's just the start of the essay, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> like... He he said that he looked down at his like he got off the mower and of course his one foot's gone but he was able to like limp over and pick up his foot like that was a big deal to him to pick up his foot and then he wanted a cigarette so he sat there holding his cigarette as they called the ambulance and holding his foot as well but then the but then the end of the essay he got they were able to reattach his foot. So I was always confused of whether or not the foot was totally severed or not, or if it was just part of the foot. 
but then he was in like a car accident just like a couple years later and the foot was once again like kind of ripped from uh uh ripped from uh from the bone and like he lost part of the foot again Damn. I should have gave, should have gave that guy like a D because now I, that story doesn't doesn't seem true to me as a as I say it out loud. But it's a great essay. I mean, it's just a great story. Oh, he was a great student. He was. So. Well, you know, it's weird. It makes me think of when I was a kid. One of my most searing childhood memories was probably when I was in like maybe second grade, somewhere in there. You know, seven, eight years old, and I was with my buddy Ryan. We were playing in his backyard. And we suddenly heard sirens. And, you know, our street was not very, uh, it was a small neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? Like when you heard sirens, it was a big deal. And so we come running out of his backyard and we realize that the sirens are in front of my house. And oh, so we run to my house and it turns out that this kid in our neighborhood who was a few years older than us was riding his bike. And I guess he was having trouble with the chain on his bike. And he reached down to like fix it while he was moving and pedaling, and his finger got caught in the uh, I don't know what that wheel is called with the spikes on it that holds the chain. Yeah. yeah. But it cut off his finger, and uh, my dad. And here's here we go. We're bringing a full circle. My dad was mowing the lawn. My Another dad, book father. Yeah. My my dad was mowing the lawn, and was the first you know first responder to this poor kid who fell off his bike and was screaming and had lost his finger. And I ran, you know, with Ryan uh, to to go see what was the matter. And I remember my dad putting like his uh, green army blanket on this kid in our garage. And then the ambulance showed up. And then it was like, "Where's his finger?" And then the weird part about it is that I remember that like his finger was found in the gutter. This is my memory of the story, yeah. and that it was put in a plastic bag with ice, which I think is what they do when you lose a a digit or whatever to try to preserve it for reattachment. Yeah. And like for most, if not all of my childhood, I always recalled having seen the finger in the gutter and seen it like the whole thing and seen the bloody finger in the bag. I don't think that's true. I don't think I yeah. ever actually saw the bloody digit. But I think in, you know, my memory of the story, like I, as a kid, you maybe sort of wanted to believe that or. Yeah. It's fucked up. <laughs> and I, I feel like we need to just swap stories of like mutilation and death and the rest of the island. I feel like I feel like I would lose. I feel like as you're from West Virginia, you would somehow have access to more of those stories. Yeah, what immediately it made me think of was I had a friend that I went to college with whose brother was an EMT, and he responded to an accident. And as he's walking up to the car, he realizes realizes that it's his mother's car. Oh God, she's dead in the car. Fucking hell. I bet Jonathan Saffron Foyer didn't have stories like that. <laughs> Maybe he does. Was I'll, he eating at the end of that podcast? I've heard from a lot of people who I got a lot of letters about this from listeners who were like, why was Jonathan Saffron Foyer eating during the interview? And he was. And I have a couple of theories on this. Like, I, first of all, like uh, he may have just been super hungry. Like it's pop. Yeah. Because he's on book tour, he's got to go do things. Like this might have been his only window to like get any sustenance. So I've got to give it, got to give him at least that option. Maybe he was just starving yeah. and had no other choice. But uh, the other thing is that like that morning, I was particularly harried, and I was racing to prepare, and just the way that I always do. And and uh, I was just about to call him, and I checked my email, and he had emailed me. Now, like, like you could call him directly, or do you have to like go through his publicist? No, no, I called him directly. I skyped him. You know, it was a little dig. Did you hear? <laughs> I was like, uh, no, I, I skyped him, and uh, right before I did, I checked my email, and there was an email from him, 
And he was like, Hey man, I need to do this like two hours early. Is that possible? Like, if not, no big deal, but I really do. And, and I didn't, I couldn't do that, you know, and, and I didn't even get it until right before. And I, in my head, of course, I'm paranoid and thinking like, was he annoyed with me and mad at me that I didn't reschedule? And I'm like, well, you know, it was the day of. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Cause at the beginning it was kind of like nice, sweet, little imaginative Jonathan telling you about his world of novels. But then it felt a little passive aggressive there at the, at the end eating. I don't know what that was. Yeah, I, I, I sort of felt maybe that could be the case too, but I don't want to assume those things. You know, I just want to, yeah. I want to assume that he was just hungry and, exactly. that, and that he wasn't mad at me. <laughs> to continue on our dark note of the evening, oh. it makes me think of, Julia listens to these podcasts. Well, I listen to them too, but like she got me hooked on them. And, and like, wait, I got to interrupt you. Uh, okay. your, your wife, Julia Scoria, or Juliet Scoria has been on this program. Yeah. Also a writer, just for listeners who are yeah. not aware. And I keep calling her Julia, because Juliet may not be her real name. Right. I don't know if anybody's up on the writing profession, but sometimes <laughs> people people go by no, different names. Right. Yeah, but anyway, she listens to these like murder podcasts, and she's got me hooked on them. And we, we listened to one, it's probably been almost a month ago now, and I have to constantly talk about this with anyone I talk to, which is kind of disturbing. But she listened to one about the original Night Stalker. You ever heard of him? He was this guy in Sacramento, or they believe it was a guy, and um, and he uh, from the late seventies to like the mid eighties did all of this fucked up. He break into people's houses. He was never caught, so he break into people's houses. Uh, typically, um, a rape was involved, and then the husband would be bound and gagged it was like over 50 of these cases but anyway it made me think because after he would like break into your house and fuck up your life forever he would go in your kitchen and he would eat all your food isn't that strange that is strange it's like it's like marking his territory or some sort of act of yeah. uh of uh what is it like a signature or something right well i think some of the investigators too are thinking a lot that was like the key to the case that Maybe he was like he was like uh, you know diabetic or something, or you know maybe maybe he had to eat eat in that way. But it's yeah yeah I like you know when you're like a little boy or uh, and you get like so scared that you can't even move. Right. Well, tonight we're listening, and this was like a multi part, it's like a ten part series, and so we're on like part six, and it's not it's not getting any nicer. And like I was so afraid in the bed that I swear to God, like, I couldn't move. And Julia, she was, like, breathing heavily. She was already asleep. So, uh... Yeah, that shit fucks with me, man. I, I feel like I've got I've gotten uh, less able to tolerate stories of that kind of human darkness as I've gotten older. And uh, I, I've said this before, becoming a parent, I think that has had, you know, made me more sensitive to the evils of the world. Yeah, that's, like, my only rule with the podcast. I can't, I can't take, like, the kid murder stuff. Right. But what I was going to say, what was weird is this original Night Stalker, not only would he, like, destroy your life, but then, like, a week later, he would call your house. And there were, like, these voice uh, recordings of him calling people after and before as well, where he would, like, talk into the phone, like, I'm, I'm going to kill you, Brad. I'm going to kill you. It was so, <laughs> it's so creepy. Like, yeah. it's, like, so creepy. Um anyway yeah it's fucked let's just up. keep getting dark let's just, <laughs> let's just, let's just keep pushing it let's spiral let's spiral 
Uh, so what about other stories of mutilation? Anything else that we need to cover in that realm before we move on? I mean, we got, you know, I guess we, we left West Virginia, we went to, to California, but, uh, yeah. anything growing uh, up, like people getting, like losing limbs or. Yeah, there was, see, we lived in Raynell, which is, it used to be home to the largest hardwood sawmill in the world. Uh, I can tell you're impressed. <laughs> and, and so, like, there were guys walking around who didn't have arms or, like, they were missing a hand. Like, that was just, like, a normal part of of everyday life. Um, and there was, a, there was a guy who, uh, Johnny, I can't remember his last, Partain, Johnny Partain. And he would always sell you tickets to the to the Catholic spaghetti dinner in the fall. But he was an old man when I knew him. But I guess when he was a young man, he was pulling green chain and got his arm ripped off. And then he smoked a cigarette. Maybe I'm maybe I'm fucking up the stories. <laughs> yeah, like he he like went over and sat down and just like smoked a cigarette. I wrote that's in one of the storybooks. I fictionalized it of course, but uh but yeah, yeah, like uh you know, human mutilation it's it's kind of uh, our state motto in some but, like the presence of mind to like you lose a you lose a foot or a hand or whatever the case may be and then the first thing you do is just light a cigarette like i have yeah. great, i have a lot of admiration for that in a way yeah or they're really addicted to cigarettes <laughs> i mean just i think uh i mean most people would probably just pass out or you know go into some kind of shock maybe that is a function of being in shock you just yeah i think so i think so when i, when I was in ninth grade I used to play football and um, had a compound fracture of my left arm. It was not like a bad compound fracture, but it was just like where the my my forearm looked like like an L. That's that's how bad I I, I tripped and I like my arm my arm came up underneath my shoulder pads and it broke the arm in in this horrible fashion that um, like I could hear like the trainers who came out on the field like they were gagging. Like that was like sickening them, but I can remember looking down at it and thinking to myself, "Oh, cool! Like I broke my arm. Like I've never had a broken bone before. Like this must be what a broken arm looks like." And of course, it wasn't. You know, it was this freak arm that had uh, been created through uh, through the injury. But yeah, I can I can remember for probably a good half hour. You know, I was I wasn't really feeling any pain. And when they put me in the ambulance, the bad thing about West Virginia. It's like if something goes wrong, like you have once the ambulance gets there, that means that you're just kind of like maybe halfway through the story <laughs> or or maybe even just like a, a fourth of the way through the story, because then you have to drive for like an hour right. to get to like a clinic or a hospital where they can treat something like like a broken like a broken bone. That's fucked, grandpa, that's yeah. fucked up, dude. I, I, it's making me think of uh, I was in Italy. It, when I was just out of college, I did like the backpacking thing, and I was in this uh, small town in like Cinque Terre, Italy, I think it was. You know, one of those cliffside villages with all the pasta, yeah. pastel buildings or houses or whatever perched on a cliff. And there were all these, you know, it's, all, it's nothing but like college kids basically in this town in the summer. And uh, there was a girl, a young girl, and she was with some guys. I think they were like Italian guys, and. I, I was nearby and I could see that they were flirting and then it was like, we're going to go cliff jumping and we're going to jump into the water. And this girl jumped and she landed wrong and like seriously fucked herself up. And I remember standing there watching the whole thing and then watching like the entire emergency process happen in this like steep, tiny cliffside village. And it took 
forever. And then it was like loaded and they didn't know what they were doing. And it was like I, that part of it was the most like uh, nerve wracking part was just like watching the slow motion response and like, how are we going to get this girl to a hospital? And do we need to get her to the top of the mountain for a helicopter and people yeah. speaking in different languages? It was crazy. Yeah. yeah. My grandfather had a heart attack one time because at that point he had to go to Lomore, Lomore, which is near, well, I guess it's down towards Roanoke. So it would have probably been like, I don't know, two and a half, three-hour drive at that point in time back in the 1950s or whenever he had it. And he just sat on his porch like after he had it. He's like, I'm not getting in the truck to or you know, the ambulance that they called to drive all the way there just for him to tell me I, I had a heart attack. <laughs> I, I have a, When you mentioned the, the girl with her injury, it made me think that um, we used to attend uh, – they'd have like high school wrestling – is really big in southern West Virginia, and where I went to high school, Greenbrier West, like there were some guys who were just amazing. You know, they won, they, you know, the school would win state championships, and we went to this um, like meet. They let us out of school on Friday to go to the meet, and one of our wrestlers, he was a Franklin boy, he like suplexed this guy from another school, the Richwood Lumberjacks, I want to say. And dislocated the guy's shoulder right in front of everybody. And the whole entire crowd just sort of gasped. And then they started kind of cheering almost. (laughs) Blood sport. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. exactly. By by the way, dislocating a shoulder is painful. The guy on the ground must have been... Oh, yeah. He was was screaming. He was crying. I think his mom was there and she came out. It was one of those those, uh, ordeals. Yeah, I mean, it's like people... It's a... It's weird how much people, uh, even people who are nonviolent and who claim to abhor violence, there's something about the spectacle of violence that draws people in. Whether it's like, I think of car crashes at like the Indy 500 when I was growing up. Oh, yeah, for sure. People love that shit. Or like an injury, uh, like a boxing match, like the knockout punch. Like it's just, it's brutal. And yeah. uh, it should uh, it should sicken us more. Should it not? Or <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think maybe the act of witnessing uh, some act of violence maybe provide something to uh to the community on maybe a collective level yeah uh, but like where's the line you know yeah yeah for sure so uh what else has happened today what if i knew what if i knew where the line was i, <laughs> I mean <laughs> and i was able to define for you right at that moment where the line was and that problem was solved for the rest of your life. I, would, I, I would be so happy all i ever want is for people to tell me where the line is Right. Scott McClanahan said in other people episode three hundred and whatever what episode is this gonna be? Four hundred and seventy three. Yeah. Oh man, you've done some podcasts, haven't you? Yeah. It's a, it's a big yeah. it's a big problem. I gotta work it out with a shrink at some point, but you know <laughs> six years, baby. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever thought it made me think though, as we were gonna have to re record this, it made me think like if you th- have you ever? It would be like maybe a neat little avant-garde little podcast, you know, where you almost kind of re-record them again and again until you kind of like a movie director. I'm thinking like you know, Robert Bresson, right? He'd record the same take of an actor, you know, 400, 500 times, and it's like Kubrick. Yeah, yeah, for this, sure. Yeah. The, ladies and gentlemen uh, who are listening to this episode, this is the director's cut of my interview with Scott McClanahan. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, one thing that I've thought of doing is, uh, like interspersing interview, like doing like episodes, uh, 
you know, during the week where I just turn on the microphone and just talk, but that just seems so indulgent. Yeah. And, and then yeah. I, you know, a long time I've, for a long time I've, I've entertained the idea of, of going out into the field, which I would love to do, but just the time and energy that it requires with the, the other demands of my life, it just hasn't been practical yet, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So I don't know, but you, you know, we were talking yesterday, this is something we discussed yesterday, which is that you're going to potentially tow the waters of podcasting. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested in like uh, the form. It sounds so pretentious that I'm calling it a I'm calling it a form uh, <laughs> at uh, at this point. Like I think th- I think there's something there. Just like on a narrative level, I think maybe listening to so many of these podcasts. I had somebody what was that? There's a station out there, KCRW. Yeah, they did a couple years ago. They took one of my stories and turned it into like a little radio play. The idea is this. I have a bunch of stories that I don't think I'm going to use that are all about like the fights that I've got into with Julian. We've had some doozies. Um, and I'm and I'm not, uh, again, saying that you should uh, fight with your significant other in order to fuel your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> don't try. Don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> That's right. But I think it's I think it's simple enough. And my friend Chris Oxley, I do a lot of these things with. You know, he's a he's a kind of uh, public public television guy, I'm sound guy, and so you know, I think we have just simple enough in terms of the elements, the voices, you know, a narration with possibly also you know voices, uh, almost kind of acting out. I don't know for like four or five minutes, something something like that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm I guess you know just the kind of concept of like you know the audio. The audio novel, um, there may be something. There may be something there. I'm kind of. It's kind of. Uh, it's something that I feel kind of uh, building, like I like I should do. Well, but of course, typically with these projects, you do one of them, and it's like, oh, that's a bad idea. Well, but, but you know, there. I think there's something to it because I think that you, as a storyteller, uh, as a writer and a storyteller, but especially as a storyteller, uh, have a lot of um, ability. In the realm of uh, like the oral tradition, like, like yeah. telling stories, like not all writers have that. A lot of writers are great on the page, but they're not great at verbalizing a story. You can really tell a story. Yeah, I have plenty of like high school wrestlers getting their shoulder separated stories. <laughs> Maybe that's what the podcast should be about. I could call it like athletes, <laughs> <laughs> or just like people getting maimed. The stories right. of maiming. I was thinking about. Do you remember that show, uh, Rescue Nine One One, with William Shatner? Yeah, I could be like the Shatner of the athletes, and then I could <laughs> I could tell about their their horrible injury and <laughs> describe in great, great detail how their mothers wept over the bodies of their of her sons and daughters. So. What about? Uh, did you ever listen to S Town? That podcast you and Julia listened. Yeah, to? yeah, I, I liked S Town. I did. I liked it. I feel like there is something, I, for some reason, just now it popped into my head, there's something uh, about John B. McLemore and you that resonate together. Maybe it's just like the, like, I feel like you guys are, <laughs> bear with me though, bear with me. I think there is something, at least in terms of storytelling, verbal facility, um, there's the obvious, you know, you guys are both uh, have a bit of a southern accent, Yeah. but yeah. like incredibly well read. And yeah. uh, do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how there's no. like maybe a resonance or like, or like some, some sort of uh, parallel thing happening? It makes me think that maybe this analogy is true. Maybe for the sake of other people to boost the ratings, I could like commit suicide <laughs> <laughs> after this podcast episode. <laughs> 
I'll come on. I'll come on after the uh, after the interview's so over. Can... My closing statement. I'll be like after like like seconds after hanging up with me. <laughs> At least he called it. He called. <laughs> but you did like you did like S Town. Yeah, I did. And also too, like my dad for some reason. My dad was like, you know, worked at Kroger. He was like a produce manager, and you know, threw around like you know big big bags of potatoes and this kind of union guy and you know uh, hates trump as i mentioned uh yesterday and he also sounds sort of like a a mississippi bluesman from like the like 1920s 1930s i don't i probably shouldn't do an act i feel like i'm uh i'm exploiting him here if i were to do the to do the impression but um oh shit what the hell is oh he's into clocks now he retired right and he'd done all of the you know he so active his entire life, and then he turns sixty, and now he's just into clocks and watches. Like my mom, I'll say like, well, "What's like?" I'll talk to her on the phone. I was like, "What? What's Dad doing?" She's like, "He's just in there at the computer, and he's looking at watches, right?" <laughs> and I guess she goes to the bathroom, and then we'll be in the bathroom for a few minutes, and comes back, and passes the door where their computer's at, and I look, I look in there. And he's just still looking at watches. I guess he looks at them on the internet, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so yeah, see, there's another connection. That's connection number two after the suicide. Well, <laughs> let, me, uh, let me tell you something. Lately, I've had this weird thing where, like, I cannot stop looking at border collies on the internet. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm obsessed. Like, on my phone, while I'm rocking my son to sleep, like... While I'm at work, I'm like peeking at like puppy photos. I'm looking at puppies for yeah. a good hour to you know hour and twenty a day. I would bet when you when you add it all up, can't fall asleep. Like if I if I wake up in the middle of the night, need to fall back asleep, I'm looking at puppies. Like what does that yeah. say? What does that say about my psyche right now? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we, we have a dog. We got a dog last. It's a California dog, which is a very California thing to do. Which is, I guess. Well, we flew to San Diego to go to the shelter, pick up the puppy, and then we brought the puppy all the way back to uh, West Virginia. And um, she's she's a good dog. I've never been a dog person. I've always, uh, but I like her. Uh, but I've never really, I had a dog as a kid, but it was a dog that we called Buddy. I was in like the fourth grade and this dog just showed up on our porch one morning it was a sunday morning we we're getting ready to go to church i remember and there's buddy on our porch and he hung around for a good like three four months and then he just took off again and he's like a hobo dog because he had like all these other fam i found out this is this is where i, uh, I felt as if i'd been cheated on by the, by the dog as a young man because he had he would like hang out at a house for a couple of months and then move on he came back to our house once but then he laughed again, so I don't know if that like messed me up with uh, with dogs or uh, you, got, you got like abandonment issues. Yeah, maybe so. What we always had cats. We were like cat people. What kind of dog you have now? It's I don't know. It's like uh, I don't know. It's like a poodle. It's part poodle, part mutt. It's real cute. Yeah, kind of looks like a kind of looks like a possum in the eyes. Gets this glazed over look in her eye a lot of times, and she just goes into possum mode. 
but uh, she, she's a good dog. I'm super cool. Like I talked about mama grass. I talked about, I talked about my dog. This is the, the domestic life of a writer. That's it, man. Yeah. Have you ever heard that Winston Churchill quote? Because he didn't really care for dogs either. Uh, he had like pigs all the time, I guess, especially in like in his later life. And he said that um, a cat will look down on you. A dog will look up to you, but a pig will look you right in the eye. I don't doubt so, it. I don't doubt yeah, it. Pigs, pigs are smarter than my, almost every dog, or I think maybe every dog. They're they're a smart animal. Yeah, yeah, for sure. My grandma used to have hogs out behind her place, and uh, when I was a boy, she got rid of them though, after a while. But yeah, I guess they always had animals, and the Clanahans did growing up like that. They, like my dad hates pork, for instance. Like, I guess it just like brings back memories of like you know slaughtering pigs so. oh it's gnarly it's uh he's also against thanksgiving for like the same reason i'd like your dad <laughs> i'd get i would get along with that man <laughs> yeah for sure for sure <laughs> so what about church you mentioned church uh i'm curious to know what your spiritual situation was and is and and if there was any kind of evolution uh from childhood to adulthood oh yeah well i guess like i grew up in what was called the Church of Christ. I want to sound real crazy now. People know that Church of Christ. It used to be called the Disciples of Christ. It's like a non-denominational church where you. The one good thing is like you actually, you actually like read the the texts, right? You actually read the the book. You know, our Sunday morning worship's taken up by um, Bible study as you know half of it and then you sing a couple songs and then like you know the preacher gets up there to make his 80 dollars for the sunday and he preaches for like 15 minutes so i always grew up in church like one of my earliest memories is we had a our church building at the time didn't have like indoor plumbing like one of my earliest memories is like going with my mom out to like you know, johnny house i guess outdoor toilet whatever you want to call them but we call them johnny houses here and uh and going out there and the windows were open because it was summertime and i remember she had a yellow dress on like this yellow dress and um and i could hear the voices from the church singing the hymn coming out of the out of the windows and that's like one of my really nice uh childhood childhood memories but i don't know you know i was i guess i was i was like hyper religious in some ways like i almost felt I had like a Joan of Arc experience with uh, with religion, and you know I went through. I remember I got I got baptized like really early, especially even for Church of Christ, um, because they you know you have to have knowledge of sin and et cetera et cetera you know according to uh, New Testament. So, but I was still baptized at like eleven, I want to say, because I'd had a classmate who died in a car crash with her mother. And I didn't, like, that was like an obsession, like, each night when I'd go to bed. It's like, I don't want to go to, you know, hell without being baptized, because I'll probably get killed in a car accident with my mom. You know, that sort of childhood-type thinking. But, you know, I was, I don't know, I was like, I was a big believer in in all that stuff. But a, a believer in it in, like, a completely different way than what people think. There's such cliches and stereotypes about, uh... You know about religion or religious uh, religious people. So wait, that, when they when they uh, when they baptize you, they baptize you in a river? 
Uh, no, I could have had that option. Like you, it's like a restaurant. You check uh, the River <laughs> Creek baptism. But no, we had a baptistry in the church by that point in time, which is like this giant like bathtub in the church. Right. And then you'd get down in the bathtub. But I remember there was like green stuff, green stuff in the bottom of uh, the baptistry. I guess you know it gets algae and and things. And, and once it's been there, you know, year in year out with you know water. It's like cool. got to uh, get yeah, some chlorine. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be like immersed in baptism according to you know the Church of Christ. Like we're not like you know those Methodists, you know, who just do a little sprinkling or, or whatever. We want to make sure our place in heaven is secure. But I'm an atheist now. But like you know, relig- religions, religions, uh, you know, serve as a purpose. You know. Yeah. Okay. So you're an atheist now. What do you? I don't even know if I'm an atheist. Like it's one of those. You know, I guess even the. It's, I feel like I'm in this Aristotelian sort of dialogue where you can't really call yourself like an atheist because then that means that the idea of God exists. Like the, the, non, the non-entity means that it must come from some entity, if that makes any sort of uh, philosophy 101. Well, but it also becomes – atheism to me also often backslides into – uh, dogmatism and like really yeah, exactly. st- strong belief, and uh, like that's that's where it starts to become the mirror image of the thing it professes to refute. You know? Yeah, I guess right now I would say my like spiritual makeup is like I would I want I want there to be an afterlife so that uh, the atheist uh, has to be confronted by the fact that they were wrong in their life, right, with some sort of deity. But I would also like the flip side of that. So that the believer and the righteous uh, is confronted by some sort of deity who then sends them to hell. So, so I'm like, I'm like, uh, I, yeah, maybe, maybe, I'm maybe still big into the big into the hell concept. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like especially if you've been indoctrinated at all with a religion, and I, I use indoctrinated lightly, like not like some menacing thing, but if you've just been yeah. if you've been through a religious education. Uh, from a young age, it's it's hard to entirely shake it. Like it really embeds itself. That stuff is powerful. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, even with you know, the, I mean, I love I love the church. I mean, the Church of Christ is incredibly you know backwards and ridiculous. Like you know, any sort of any sort of belief system usually is you know you know extended to the to the nth degree. But you know, there are elements of the of the church that um, you know I encountered you know once I started reading. You know, I can remember a Bible study teacher who. Um, Somebody was asking him, you know, the concept of time, which is like, you know, so important to, you know, uh, Baptists and, you know, uh, Book of Revelation and, you know, the devil being, you know, entrapped for however many thousands of years. Well, you know, actually, you know, St. Augustine solved the problem. There's a verse, I think, in Corinthians or maybe Second Peter where, you know, a thousand years is to God as one day is a thousand years. You know, the, the concept of time is meaningless to uh to a deity and so i think that the book like i mean if i were to go back to that church not that i ever do um but like the the rituals are still like really powerful emotionally uh to me and i guess the fact that you know i spent my childhood i spent my childhood there and uh uh you know they they still hold they still hold some sort of weight and though and that you know the book right i mean that's one of the great great novels right uh, that's uh, you know that's ever that's ever been written, and you can read it like you know this strange postmodern sort of text. You know, Song of Solomon. You know, you can stream of consciousness technique, right? Uh, the 
darkness of the you know book of ecclesiastes well again you're you know you're going to find that and I don't know, Louis Celine, right, the, the French writer, or the multiple points of view of the same story. Well, that's, you know, Faulkner. Like, I mean, this, um, so the, so the stories within the, within the text, um, you know, are still important to me. There's a, you know, the Nikos Kazanstakis novel, Last Temptation of Christ, which is an amazing book, uh, you know, when we're Christ, you know, he has this last temptation, he's going to live this normal life of, you know this, uh, you know this stonemason carpenter, however you want to interpret the translation. You know he he's alive, right? The the crucifixion did not happen, and he appears before Peter, and um, you know he says Peter's uh, not pre- Peter, excuse me, Paul. And Paul's preaching about this Christ character, and he tells Paul he's like, "That's me, right? That's who I am. I was that person." And of course, in the novel, you know, the Kazanstakis novel, you know, Paul says, "I don't care, right? Uh, you're not the the story's true, right? You're not true." Um, so yeah, I, man, we were we were going all over the place. Here. No, but it's interesting. I mean, have you have you read the Bible? Have you like, have you actually read it as a book? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. See, like you're like the, the second person I know that I've talked to who's actually read the book, and I. Oh yeah, it's uh, Sunday morning is New Testament Bible study. Uh, Sunday evening, you're in a different part of the New Testament, like you do um, Gospel Sunday morning, Sunday evening epistles, and then like Wednesday evening would be Old Testament. Uh, Bibles. Then, of course, the Old Testament's not important to the to the Church of Christ. But that was your um, that was your upbringing. Yeah, that was my upbringing, and my parents are incredibly, I think, progressive, you know, liberal people and liberal, liberal in uh, their thinking. My mother used to, <laughs> your mother used to tell me this sounds so horrible now that I remember it, but I found it in uh, uh, Descartes a couple months ago. It was just kind of popped out at me, which is she was like, well, you know, if, I was like, well, I don't know if I believe in this. You know, imagine being, you know, thirteen years old. I was like, I don't believe in any of this stuff, mom is. You know, this shit's stupid, you know, or however you talk to your mom when you're 13. She's like, and I remember her telling me, well, if you're a betting person, right, what's the, what's the hurt, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, you know, Christian, Christian thinkers have, uh, and non-Christian thinkers have, uh, have been, uh, have been battling, uh, battling with that, uh, you know, with that issue, uh, since the writing of the book. I read a great book, maybe, maybe I've, Gosh, again, how uncool is this too? This is the, now he's now he's talking about church. <laughs> well, but let me ask you this: since you're since you're no longer uh, a believer and no longer a churchgoer, uh, what is, what was the break? Was it just a, a natural function of getting older and, and yeah, thinking about I think, it? Or? I think you realize everything's a racket at the end of the day, right? And, and uh, maybe that's maybe that's a cynical sort of way of. Uh, looking at things, but most things are. Um, and of course, if you look up, uh, I have that in the Sarah book. If you look up cynicism, it says a deep and profound understanding of human nature. Right? We always usually use the term typically, typically as a as a negative. So yeah, you know, you you realize it's it's just a trap. Like like everything is a is a trap in this world. These you know, dot citrus drop extreme sodas that are drink <laughs> the case. Or yeah, how many? How, how many of you put? How many, about soda. <laughs> how many of you? How many of you put back today? Oh, I don't know, because I mowed the grass. So I, pr- I probably had to get like extra, extra yeah. energy. Yeah. And I, I don't really tweet. Like I just like retweet, like the sh- like you know, buy my shit type tweets. Right. 
So I think it's really truly like the spiritual function of, of that platform. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, the one great tweet that I tweeted back in the day was, uh, did you know that our bodies was, are made up of 90% Mountain Dew? That was like <laughs> one, my one good tweet. <laughs> well, Because uh, if I said Citrus Drop Extreme Soda, nobody would understand that it's the Kroger generic brand of Mountain Dew. So Is it, just, is it more think. powerful than Mountain Dew? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah for sure. But it's like with anything. Like, I don't know, you know, you know, if you're, you know, when you're drunk, right? You, I'd always drink like Coors Light, like a, the morning. Like that was my morning beer. Because it's like real, it's almost like drinking water. But sometimes if you just like change brands, like it'll fuck you up. Like you think you're going to drink your watery Coors Light and before you know it, it's, you know, 830 and you know, and you have to go to work that day, right? And it's really kind of hit you, rather, <laughs> rather than uh, rather than the you know the typical typical uh, thing that you put yourself to sleep with at, at night. Uh, so here's what I'm thinking. Uh, I, I don't know why this popped into my head, but it's 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 back to religion for a moment. Okay. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to indulge me because I'm with you on you know a lot of the. Uh, I don't know, just the bullshit, the traps, the supernatural promises that really don't bear uh, very much scrutiny at all. And at the same time, I find myself drawn by uh, a lot of Buddhist teaching. Like I find a lot of like really like sound logic and comfort in it. And yeah. and, and like speaking of rituals, like the ritual of meditation, um, that, that helps me. You know what I'm saying? Just like just a stopping, like no belief really, but a do, like a thing to do. as a way of observing uh what's going on inside of me or whatever and and dealing with suffering in a in a calmer way or something but i read a book earlier this year called uh i think it's called the woman in the cave something like that but it's about like the first western buddhist nun sounds dirty to be (laughs) to be uh to be fully ordained and uh her name's tenzin palmo and she spent 12 years living alone in a cave in the Himalayas at 12,000 feet. She slept sitting up in like this meditation box, I guess, that like helps you maintain your posture while you sleep. But I mean, like just the most, like it's the the most like unthinkable thing for just about anybody to be alone in a cave at that altitude uh, by yourself for 12 years of your life. But the, the anecdote that just popped into my head when we were talking about, uh, religion and death and you know all that it entails is that uh she had this guru you know in the way that uh you know monks and spiritual seekers at that level of intensity usually do and she she goes to uh i guess it was india or nepal or you know something like that I, i i can't remember the exact place but she goes to this monastery to to you know become a nun or at least to explore it and she talks about meeting her guru and how when she saw him, she like burst into tears. And it's like this really powerful experience that it was immediate recognition. His wisdom enveloped her like she had known him for millennia, like all this shit that I want to believe so badly. And yeah. yet I have never even come close to having this kind of experience in my life, like not even like a whisper of this, which can make me feel deficient. And then, you know, just to press fast forward the woman uh, or the guru winds up dying and it's very sad for her. I think did he, I can't remember. I think he died before she went into the cave, but uh, when he died, his body was, uh, you know, left in uh, repose or whatever for a period of a day or two or three or whatever it was. 
And apparently when you're uh, in the Buddhist tradition, they believe that, the, that people of a, a serious um, level of spiritual achievement or attainment or whatever, when they die, they, they kind of know how to die while maintaining a certain level of uh, equanimity and awareness. And his body shrank post-mortem down to the size of like a child to the point where like eventually all that was left was his hair and his nails. Oh gosh. Which is disgusting. (laughs) But also like I found myself reading this and this woman sounds nothing but uh, sober. You know what I'm saying? Like just like the most rational person uh, on the page possible. But then she's like telling you this and you're going, this has got to be bullshit, right? Like it can't be. I'd want want the guy to shrink like even small, like to be like a little tchotchke. (laughs) Carry that guru around. Got a guru in your pocket. I think that's the next big thing. Or just collect his hair and nails off. I mean, just like not not to bring it back to my like my upbringing, but you know, there's a whole you know kind of discipline within you know the Christian tradition of uh, you know Christ, you know the concept of the missing years. Uh, and you find so many of those things that, you know, those um, Christ-like sayings from the Gospels that, you know, you can find in, uh, you know, the Tao Te Ching or, uh, you know, uh, Confucius's dial- dialects or, um, um, you know, that, that possibly, you know, that possibly, you know, there was this journey to the East, uh, so to speak, um, you know, where, you know, he probably encountered. Now, of course, probably the reality is if this individual actually existed you know, he's living in, you know, the area of Galilee, right? You're right on the Silk Road during the Roman Empire. So you're having this kind of exchange of these ideas going uh, going back and forth at the, at the same time. Same time. So, well, but yeah. I, I, I read that. I think I read that in like a Tom Robbins novel. But like it's a pretty, yeah. it's a pretty convinced. Yeah, there's, well, there's, t- there's tons of that. And there's usually like they're usually kind of people who have had, you know, uh, or at least trying to, I guess we could say, maybe trying to place their Buddhism together with their with their Christianity, you know, the Gnostic Gospels, if you're a Gnostic Christian, I mean, I would say that, you know, spiritually speaking, you're just, you're just a step away, basically, uh, from, you know, basic sort of Buddhist teachings, and the Gospel of Thomas, which is, which is a gospel that's, you know, excised, um, Lane Pagels writes about this quite a bit, you know, of, you know, Christ getting mad at his, at his disciples and saying, you know, well, God is within you, right? Uh, that you find that within, you know, that's kind of still silent voice inside your own existence, you know, kind of eliminating this monotheistic sort of concept of, you know, a Godhead or omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipowerful sort of deity. Yeah, I got to read the Gnostic Gospels. Like I've read, yeah. a, I've read a little bit about them, but I haven't like actually dug into that. Have you done that? I've, yeah, I've went, I've went through them. There's a couple of them that are beautiful. There's uh uh, the, uh, gospel of Mary, Mary Magdalene, which is from, uh, the point of view of, uh, females, you know, you know, women, even the New Testament tradition, which I guess I think's changing, right? Um, you know, Christ after resurrection, you know, who does he appear to for the first time? He appears before the women, right? And the women are then going back and preaching that story for the first time to these doubting dudes that have been fucking hanging out with him for the past couple of years there's a great book that just came out this year by this uh french writer he's like the greatest i think he's i think he's one of the top five best writers in the world uh and i don't know how to pronounce his last name but emmanuel carrier i believe it's a book called the kingdom uh in which um well he's one of these writers he combines memoir with history with these kind of third person novelistic sort of uh 
sort of techniques. Um, but yeah, that book's kind of all kind of all about that sort of the way that these books are are made, right? And uh, the way that these books are are written and produced for uh, for a readership. All right. Well, let's. Uh, you know, I want to make sure I get to the Sarah book a little bit before we uh, we sign off. So I thought that what would be interesting, since the Sarah book is about uh, the dissolution of a marriage and a relationship, is uh, would talk to you about relationships and talk to you about like what do you think makes a relationship uh, work? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's a question. Uh, that was on that's on the mind of pretty much everybody it's a struggle that most human beings engage in whether it's like trying to make a friendship work or an intimate relationship work but human relations are hard yeah um well to maybe go back to uh that famous uh i guess he wasn't a buddhist was he i was thinking of george harrison's widow and that scorsese documentary and um they asked her, you know, how do you make a relationship work or how do you how do you make a marriage work? And she's like, there's just one rule. You you don't break up. You don't get divorced. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I think there I think there's something something to that. I have no clue, though, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, I could I could solve another big issue, couldn't I? For like, man, <laughs> this is where I want you to draw the line for me. Just, just <laughs> this is my honestly, this is the mission. This is my entire life encapsulated right here. This is it. I just yeah. want somebody to give me the fucking rules. Just write it down. Just tell me I mean, what to do. Yeah, wouldn't this be scary though? If I maybe I have the answer, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but what wouldn't it be horrible? Like if I told you right now. And then tomorrow you you abandon your family. Like that, <laughs> no, that would that would not be that would not be what we what we want or need. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you uh, you, yeah, you I, spent you spent a whole book thinking about this, ruminating on it, examining it, fictionalizing it. Like, did you learn anything about uh, what makes a relationship go south, or what makes a relationship? Um, you know, I, I guess you say just stick it out, but I mean, is there anything else you found in there? Well, I'm, I want to come back to Jonathan Safran Foyer, right? Cause he's kind of written, I guess we can say kind of an end of a relationship book, right? But he kind of is connecting it to, I don't know, world events, right? Or apocalyptic cataclysmic events. And to paraphrase Freud, I guess sometimes a divorce is just a divorce. And, uh, and it's and it's maybe that simple. And within the book, like I think I think I throw out about thirty separate ideas that I've most of them I've stolen. There's a wonderful book by um, the French writer uh, Stendhal that Penguin republished as On Love is the name of it. And again, it's this weird early nineteenth century book that is almost works as manifesto as uh, rules. As story, it's, it's kind of real postmodern. Um, he even has there's waves well, in uh, his memoir that he that he wrote. He'd, he'd even do this thing where he's like, the next couple of anecdotes are really boring, so you can skip a couple of pages uh, if you want. You won't you won't miss anything, which is, <laughs> which is a technique that I want to use. <laughs> like maybe start on page one, saying that you can like skip the next. Uh, 212 or however many pages. Well, Dave Eggers, uh, Dave Eggers did that in the, in the preface to A Heartbreaking Work. I mean, I oh, yeah, that's right. Yes, and what if he stole it from Stendhal? We should we should out him tonight. He's <laughs> being a plagiarist. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I guess I kind of throw out 
a ton of stuff there. Uh, and and I guess at the end of the you know the end of the day too, um, you know, the, a novel works very differently than self help, or at least the good ones do, I believe. You know, you synthesis and or you know thesis and antithesis in some way synthesis, but usually that synthesis is kind of a contradiction of you know the thesis that you've uh, that you've kind of presupposed or have uh, brought up. Um, so yeah, I guess that it has a ton of little contradictions that are, that are throughout it, um, that, yeah, I hope, you know, I hope people, hope people read the book and maybe get a hold of the contradictions more than if I were to kind of spell them out, um, here on the, on the show, as if there's, there's a whole readership of Sarah book, uh, um, readers who are just, they're waiting for the book to to be explained. To be explained to them, right? They're still here at the fifty-fifth minute of the. Have you ever? Do you have any sort of data on that of how long people listen to your podcast? Uh, I don't. Uh, maybe I could. I, you know, I'm. This is the, here's a here's a secret about me. I'm not a guy who obsesses about his analytics. Like people ask me questions, and like I honestly got to go look. I, I forget to look. Um, is that bad? I guess I should care more. I I just don't even pay attention. But I think like. I don't think there is really accurate podcast analytic data about how long people are listening, but I could be, it could be wrong. Excuse me. That was another dot citrus tropics. Oh, please stay. I want you to stay caffeinated. (laughs) Also have a kombucha here though, too. So it'll all all balance balance it out. My addictive personality. I can't stop drinking these kombuchas now. I used to make fun of them, but they're good. They're delicious. I fucking love them. It sounds now. It sounds as if like I've dodged your question completely. No, but I um, get, it. I get it. I get wanting people to read the book and to not want to have to sit there and and decode it. I guess like I didn't know if like you'd arrived at any deeper understanding. Like whenever I like I, I try not to give advice as a general rule, especially about something like uh, you know how to how to do an intimate relationship. But like if I'm ever talking about uh, an inti- like intimate relationships or somebody just got engaged or you know something like something like that. Yeah. Like the one piece, the one thing I always say is that relationships tend to work when both parties are approaching it from uh, uh, the perspective of giving versus like, what can I get? Uh, Do you know what I'm saying? Like if you have like that generous, like how can I give to this thing versus like I need, I need, I need, like that's when things sort of tip though. I say that and I can also, you know, I can immediately contradict myself and say, well, you know what? Sometimes a person is hurting. And they do fucking need, and they can't give, yeah. you know? Yeah, and I, th- I think also, too, within... I think I have an answer for you. Okay. Thank the God. Shi- the light's shining down. <laughs> um, you know, with, within, with, uh, within the book, we, we always look at the... You know, we think about your relationships ending. You know, there are th- I think the Sarah character in the book talks about... Uh, there was a book that came out a couple of years ago that was, you know, d- uh, a book about the number of divorces that we have today, which was looking at it from a very practical sort of uh, sort of angle, which is people are living longer, right? Uh, if you are married to your spouse in, you know, 1680, you know, your husband's going to be dead when he's 25. Like, you only have to stay married to him uh, for seven, eight years, and you're probably going to have another experience or another uh, relationship uh, within that. So we're dealing with all these kind of practical aspects here within, you know, the modern world. And it, as much as, you know, as important as my relationship is with uh, with Julia and as much as I've got my shit together, 
Um, there is also the notion that um, there's a Norman Mailer quote that, you know, I've, I've really only known the people that I've uh, broken up with. People I've, sorry to quote a misogynist here at the end of it. <laughs> this, this is for the misogynist uh, part of your uh, listening listenership. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he said, he said essentially, you know, you really, on, you really only know the person that you've went through that final experience of a relationship with, which is, you know, the, the dissolution or the end of the so-called, you know, romantic uh, part of the relationship. So there's, you know, there's a depth of understanding um, that, that you have, even through that incredibly painful experience, that even that even the relationship you, current, you currently have um, you know, doesn't have the same number of edges to it, right? Now, of course, I want to do on a daily basis the things that maintain, you know, grow and um, use an Oprah-type language here to speak. About. <laughs> I'm starting. Uh, I'm starting to tear up here. Yeah, to maintain that relationship, uh, which is you know revolutionized uh, my life. You know, by the end of by the end of that book. Um, the Scott character is no longer Scott, right? The Scott character is wearing the Sarah character's clothes. And in the very next chapter, the Scott character looks at his face and his face is no longer Scott. Like the thing that, the thing that kind of, um, you know, that creates the most pain in your life in some ways, you know, change, it changes you and, and vice versa for, uh, for the for the opposite uh, person uh, within the within the relationship uh, as well as um, so so yeah and I guess I, I've kind of taken a little bit of shit I think from people on Goodreads that there is that sort of I don't think it's a hopeful it's just the re, it's just the reality of being a human being right the suffering that other human beings put you through is what kind of makes you who you are uh, at the at the end of uh, the day. Not necessarily that you're going to gain any wisdom from that or you're going to gain any sort of, you know, understanding because of that pain. It's just pain. Uh, but, yeah, it has, uh, it has kind of uh, melded you. You know, the book deals with the idea of the person, which I'm getting ready to read uh, Catherine Lacey's new novel, and I saw in the Dwight Garner review, you know, that, you know, I think she touches on that concept of the idea of the person as well and we i think we typically uh think of that as like a negative right you have this idea of the person well that's that's a reality of any human relationship right the idea of the person is incredibly important um i think in this in the book i think i poo poo it a little bit more uh than than that but yeah that's there's that old robert burns poem right to a louse right and you know, if, if you know, we could see ourselves as other people see ourselves, and that's part of a relationship. That other, that other person, um, that other person seeing themselves in you. That mirror effect that is so wonderful uh, about human sexuality and human communication, and uh, and uh, you know, making somebody laugh. Damn, man, and, and yeah, and it's making me think too. Like, we have no idea. Or maybe some idea, but not a clear idea of what uh, or how other people see us. That's that's fucking that's yeah, fucked up. Yeah, it's fucked sure. up. Fucked up to think about how you have such a because I have you can easily fall into this thing where you have such a fixed idea about how everybody sees you, and the truth is you really have 
not much idea at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And with that, you know, even these kind of highfalutin kind of BS, you know, the I feel like 13-year-old Scott back at church, right, where, <laughs> you know, want to call bullshit on a lot of this stuff. Right. Maybe it comes down to the fact that I really get a kick. My ego, it does my ego a world of good when I can make Julia laugh. Like maybe it's something more animalistic and simple. Simple, you know. I, I like the way she smells, right? Yeah. And uh, and it's something that's uh, that's beyond this sort of way that we have these ideas and these ideals about uh, about uh, relationships. There's a great uh, Goethe novel called Elective Affinities, uh, in which that's the very almost thesis of the book that. Love is nothing more than chemistry, right? In which for a period of time you were attracted to this uh, molecular structure and then something occurs within the molecular structure in which you're no longer uh, attracted to. Um, Something very kind of dull and simple and science-like. But yeah, beautiful though, too. And like, yeah, not entirely on like, there's some bit of truth in that, but it also seems, it also makes me sort of ache. Cause it's like this, like brings to mind how like ephemeral it is, like this chemical reaction that like flares up and then burns out. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking back, back towards, you know, like, you know, some of these things that we've talked about, you know, the, you know, various Vedas and, you know, you perfect, you know, in the Hindu tradition, you know, you perfect your love of god through the love of something you know other other than your than yourself um yeah and i think that i think it's all part of that to to sound an incredibly uh revolting and uh kind of kind of place your place your finger in your in your throat and do a throw up that's what my kids have got into here recently they like to pretend they're throwing up and then they laugh (laughs) my daughter it's a great face yeah she was uh She's turned into this amazing storyteller, and uh, she's on the autism spectrum. And uh, but anyway, we're driving back from. She likes to go to McDonald's on Saturday, and then we go to the Rupert Public Library, and you have to drive like 15 minutes to get to the Rupert Public Library. And on the way back, well, she'll always tell us a story. Well, all of her stories now, which I guess is the world of a six-year-old, right? Or seven. Seven-year-old like vomits like a big event in your life. Yeah, like, when you throw the big event, so this is that's usually always the dramatic sort of climax uh, of her story. And she was telling a story about I was I was over at my friend's house one day, and uh, we were playing playing basketball and, and enjoying a enjoying a fun game together. When all of a sudden my stomach started hurting, and then she goes and she said that she threw up. But she threw up in the basketball hoop, and she scored a basket with her throw-up basketball, and she won the game. And that's the way the story ended. So I thought there's something like powerful about that story, right? That uh, like you know, it took me that's that Picasso idea. You know, it took me 50 years to learn how to draw like a child. Like the man's like, that's a damn good story, Iris. Like maybe I should steal that shit off of you right now. Put it in a book. Right. Uh, so uh, last thing I want to talk to you about is guilt. Uh, you had a Christian upbringing, uh, that like a lot of times, you know, you develop a certain relationship with guilt and, uh, I guess we all have some degree of it, but is, is this something that Scott McClanahan, uh, wrestles with do you? Do you have a lot of personal feelings of guilt? Do you get tied up in that? Or are you somebody who, uh, is able to kind of, uh, 
uh, I don't know, like look at it and move on. Yeah, I guess uh, for some reason I'm not going to quote Norman Mailer again, even if the <laughs> misogynist part of your audience loves it. But that's he said that's the reason why people had affairs was the guilt, right? That it was the existential kind of, um, you know, the existential sort of side of, uh, you know, the affair was the guilt that that was the third participant, right, within the infidelity, but. Separate and apart from that, I'm just talking. I've had too much caffeine. I'm talking about the crap. But, uh, separate, separate and apart from that, yeah, I have tons of guilt. And like you think you don't, like I think you don't, but like you know, you 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 find yourself like here I am. I'm 30. You know what I've been feeling guilty about like recently? Like I'm feeling guilty about. I've always done this thing with my writing career where like I like I take a gun and then I like take my foot. And then I like take the gun and shoot it directly at my foot. Like I've <laughs> like I've always I've always kind of done that thing. And I think that now that you know I'm not drunk and you know living this sober life, you know I see that yeah that it's the reason why I've done that is because I think that you know I have a lot of guilt and shame that I don't know necessarily if it comes from me like my church experience. Because, you know, my church experience was, you know, treasures treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. And I mean that in a metaphorical way. We don't want people going uh, yuck to uh, to the Bible verses here. But, uh, you know, there's some truth in that, right? Like all this shit that you surround yourself with, it's meaningless. And all this crap that you have. Like right now I'm sitting in this room and I'm looking at this sweeper. And I'm looking at a pair of khaki pants on top of this sweeper. And I'm looking at this little table that Julia has next to this bed up here in the guest room. And that's a bunch of shit, right? It's gonna it's material that will disappear with with Tom, right? In the same way that I will be non existent, you know, that stupid fucking sweeper's gonna be non existent uh as well. But um it exists, right? The treasures of treasures of uh of Earth are nice and in some ways, by being a writer, you're only chasing after kind of the treasures of Earth through this kind of spiritual medium of uh, writing, of telling stories, of making your poem, of writing your song, of making a podcast or, or making a film uh, or whatever. And so, yeah, like I feel like just intense, like something horrible is going to happen uh, or like I'm going to I'm going to get my comeuppance like the Orson Welles, Magnificent Ambersons, right? And, um, and that's a real, I think that's a real pathetic way to kind of lead your life. Um, and I think that I, I've allowed that to kind of, to kind of lead my life in a number of, a number of different ways, uh, even as an adult, right? Even as a, even as a 30, you know, 39 year old dude, you know, I still have that shame that I feel about things, right? That kind of. And I know, I mean, it's all different angles, you know, if, you know, the readers of Hill William, you know, will probably understand too, like I have the shame of that, I have like the shame of of flesh and the shame of, uh, and maybe I can simplify it, I need to get back to saying something funny. The Village Voice, there was a story in The Village Voice uh, last week or a week before or something. Well, anyway, Julie and I went to New York on uh, Thursday last week to go up for the book release party, and I did a reading with Darcy, and a bunch of people came, and it was super wonderful, you know, and everybody was great, and it was great to see people and all that, but, you know, at the same time, I was telling Julie, it's like, can I not, like, uh, 
enjoy life, right? Uh, can I not, like, overthink this to turn something into a bad situation? So anyway, we finally picked up a copy of The Village Voice. And maybe this there's something wonderful about this, uh, too. I'm reaching for the copy that we picked up. Uh, which is maybe that great cosmic joke that we don't want uh, to be played on ourselves. If you look to the table of contents on page 56, you know how, like in newspapers and magazines, they have like the little sidebar and it tells you what the story's about? Yeah. And on page, it says 55 books. and But underneath it, there's this little thing that says, and Julia put this up on our um, board today, uh, Sad Man Writes Book, regretting his many bad choices. <laughs> <laughs> and so, isn't it wonderful, right? You spend all this time, you take yourself so seriously, and, you know, you, you put all this sweat and toil and stuff into this, into these little things that you make, and at the end of the day, somebody, that's that's the book, right? Like, it kind of sums it, sums it up in a real sort of comical, in a comical sort of, sort of way. Like, I want that, like, on my tombstone, or I should make it my Facebook uh, wallpaper or whatever. Sad man writes book. Hey, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network. It is a bunch of great literary sites, and you can advertise on those sites if you want to reach book people on the Internet. Does this make sense? Go to litbreaker.com and find out how you can advertise on sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Electric Literature. The list goes on. Litbreaker.com. Litbreaker. It's an online advertising network for bookish people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person. Just hey, everybody. One How's it going? I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. This is the Other People Podcast. Oh, my God. It's here. You made it. I was gone last week. I took a holiday, uh, Fourth of July week. I just felt like it was time for a bit of a summer pause. I hope that's okay. I'm back. I have a great show for you. Scott McClanahan is the guest. His new novel, The Sarah Book, is now available from Tyrant Books. It is the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Scott McClanahan, back on this podcast almost five years to the day after his uh, original appearance. And uh, what's interesting is that I had Julia Fierro on the program in uh, episode 472, and now I have Scott here in episode 473. And I want to say in both cases, uh, these individuals were making a second appearance on the show uh, like four and five years to the day after their original appearance or something like that. What I'm getting at is that there was a symmetry happening. There is a symmetry happening. That is the uh, stage that we're in now with this program. Almost six years this podcast has uh, been happening. <laughs> six years I've uh, been documenting human existence in some form. kind of hard to believe and you know what better way to spiral in the direction of uh, year seven of the other people podcast than to spend an hour 
catching up with Scott McClanahan in the feverish depths of summer. The Sarah book uh, feels like Scott's breakout novel. Rapturous critical acclaim. And, uh, you know, the cult has been building for a while, and this book, I think, is going to push him over the top. So there's a lot happening right now. Uh, I'm recording this on Monday, July 10th. It's late at night. And for those of you who follow my other people Twitter feed, for those of you who listen to this program regularly, especially in recent days, you you probably know what I'm obsessed with. You know that uh, there are certain things I'm fixated on. It's nothing unusual. I think a lot of us are fixated on it. But what I've decided is that despite the fact that major things are happening tonight, July 10th, I feel like they, they should be major. The question is, will they be received as major by those in a position to make consequential, uh, consequential uh, decisions about them? But I feel, like major, <laughs> I feel like major things are happening. And my point, ladies and gentlemen, is that I'm not going to talk about it explicitly here on this program because uh, I feel like, do we really need to do that right now? Late at night on a Monday night. Can't we just do a show? It's all about Scott McClanahan. It's all about the Sarah book. Give, a, you, you know, give everybody an hour to not think about what I'm talking about but won't mention explicitly right now. It's not that I'm making some sort of blanket rule. It's just for this episode, for this time in our lives. <laughs> Let me just not talk about it for once. Let me just not mention it. Get into the weeds. Pontificate. Offer my opinion. be publicly confused outraged I've been looking at puppies on the uh, internet compulsively lately I feel like I should tell you that <laughs> uh, I talk about this with Scott too but I feel like there's something happening to me psychologically where uh, I now need to look at puppies on the internet as a way to like reflexively counterbalance whatever else is happening in the world and in my brain. So let's get started with the show, shall we? Let's get to Scott McClanahan. His new novel, The Sarah Book, is the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Really happy to have Scott back on the program and to get to shine a light on his new novel, and I should tell you as well that there was some uh, technological difficulties in our recording process, and we actually had to do this conversation twice. We talked on Sunday, uh, yesterday for an hour, and uh, that recording, there was a problem with it. And so I emailed Scott and I explained the situation. He was nice enough to talk to me again today, a second time for another hour, and you're about to hear that conversation. And the good news is uh, it's way better. We captured lightning in a bottle. I think this is a masterpiece. Uh, here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Scott McClanahan, and his new novel, One More Time, is called The Sarah Book. I mowed the grass today. 
uh, which is like a big deal. I know this, this is going to be a fascinating, a fascinating podcast if uh, we just talk about mowing the grass. Julia like makes fun of me because I always tell her all the time that I need to mow the grass. Like it's this weird sort of tick that I that I have. Uh, but today I actually did mow the grass. How long do you let it go? How, like, does, do you let it get pretty long? Uh, yeah, I'm like, you know, Ross Perot, he like had his hair cut like every two days or something. Like, I'm, 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 I'm sort of like that with my lawn mowing. Uh, there's something that's uh, like a cheap, like a level of, uh, of zen. Uh, like a week. I would say like a week. And- I would, I would probably. I don't know. This could, we could probably tie this into like the sadism of my father. Making me mow the grass, Tom and Tom again, and doing it right. So maybe that's maybe that's maybe that's where I where I get it. So. Well, so wait, are you on a riding mower or are you push mower? No, I'm I'm a push mower guy. Yeah, I like to like to get my workout uh, through the through the push mower. I'm not sounding very cool starting off talking about mowing the grass. No, but I find this interesting because uh, you know there's something very satisfying about getting it right and getting those straight rows. Yeah, I think so too. I've heard other people say that. I saw a meme like the other day where somebody was like making fun of that idea, but but like I to I totally uh I totally believe in that. Well and the the other there's, thing too is that there's you know, you got uh young you know, when you're a young man and your and your father is making you mow the grass or you're mowing lawns for money or whatever, it's a little bit more onerous. But then I noticed there's something about uh men in middle age that where mowing the lawn becomes some kind of expression of uh, relief somehow from the struggles of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just the stories popped in my head. I also teach, like, English. And the best English 101 narrative descriptive essay, and this will tie into some of these things we talked about last time, was this one kid. I can't remember what his name was. I want to say his name was Ricky. But anyway, he his essay was about when he was on a riding lawnmower, and he worked for, like, a tree service company, and I guess he was riding the lawnmower up on the side of the hill, and that's always a problem here in West Virginia. Like, nobody's, you know, yard's just completely flat. And he was riding it up on a hill, and it flipped over on him and cut off his foot. Oh, shit. Yeah. But then, that was, that's just the start of the essay, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> like... He said that he looked down at his, like, he got off the mower, and, of course, his one foot's gone, but he was able to, like, limp over and pick up his foot. Like, that was a big deal to him, to pick up his foot. And then he wanted a cigarette, so he sat there holding his cigarette, as they called the ambulance, and holding his foot as well. But then the the end of the essay, they were able to reattach his foot? So I was always confused of whether or not the foot was totally severed or not, or if it was just part of the foot. Uh, but then he was in like a car accident, just like a couple of years later, and the foot was once again like kind of ripped from, uh, uh, ripped from uh, from the bone, and like he lost part of the foot again. Damn. I should have gave, I should have gave that guy like a D, because now I, that story doesn't doesn't seem true to me as a as I say it out loud. But it's a great S. I mean, it's just a great story. Oh, he was a great student. He was. So. Well, you know, it's weird. It makes me think of when I was a kid, one of my most searing childhood memories was probably when I was in like maybe second grade, somewhere in there, you know, seven, eight years old. And I was with my buddy Ryan. We were playing in his backyard and we suddenly heard sirens. And, you know, our street was not very, uh, it was a small neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? Like when you heard sirens, it was a big deal. And so... We come running out of his backyard, and we realize that the sirens are in front of my house. 
And oh, so, so we run to my house, and it turns out that this kid in our neighborhood, who was a few years older than us, was riding his bike, and I guess he was having trouble with the chain on his bike, and he reached down to, like, fix it while he was moving and pedaling, and his finger got caught in the, uh, I don't know what that wheel is called, with the spikes on it that holds the chain. Yeah. yeah. But it cut off his finger, and uh, my dad, and here's here we go, we're bringing a full circle. My dad was mowing the lawn. My Enter dad, the book, father. Yeah, my, no, my dad was mowing the lawn. And was the first, you know, first responder to this poor kid who fell off his bike and was screaming and had lost his finger. And I ran, you know, with Ryan uh, to to go see what was the matter. And I remember my dad putting like his uh, green army blanket on this kid in our garage. And then the ambulance showed up. And then it was like, where's his finger? And then the weird part about it is that I remember that like his finger was found in the gutter. This is my memory of the story, yeah. and that it was put in a plastic bag with ice, which I think is what they do when you lose a, a digit or whatever to try to preserve it for reattachment. Yeah, and like for most, if not all, of my childhood, I always recalled having seen the finger in the gutter and seen it, like the whole thing, and seeing the bloody finger in the bag. I don't think that's true. I don't think I yeah. ever actually saw the bloody digit, but I think in you know. My memory of the story, like, I, as a kid, you maybe sort of wanted to believe that, or... Yeah. It's fucked up. <laughs> and I, I feel like we need to just swap stories of, like, mutilation and death <laughs> into the rest of the island. I feel, like I, I feel like I would lose. I feel like, as you're from West Virginia, you would somehow have access to more of those stories. Yeah. What immediately it made me think of was I had a friend that I went to college with whose brother was an EMT, and he responded to an accident. And as he's walking up to the car, he realizes realizes that it's his mother's car. Oh, God. She's dead in the car. Fucking hell. I bet Jonathan Safran Foyer didn't have stories like that. <laughs> Maybe he does. Was I'll, he eating at the end of that podcast? I've heard from a lot of people who... I got a lot of letters about this from listeners who were like, why was Jonathan Safran Foyer eating during the interview? And he was, and... I have a couple of theories on this. Like, I, first of all, like uh, he may have just been super hungry. Like it's because yeah. po- he's on book tour. He's got to go do things. Like this might have been his only window to like get any sustenance. So I've got to give it. Got to give him at least that option. Maybe he was just starving yeah. and had no other choice. But uh, the other thing is that like that morning, I was particularly harried, and I was racing to prepare and just the way that I always do. And and. Uh, I was just about to call him, and I checked my email, and he had emailed me. Now, like, like you could call him directly, or do you have to like go through his publicist? No, no, I called him directly. I skyped him. You know, that was a little dig. Did you hear? It? <laughs> I was like, uh, no, I, I skyped him, and uh, right before I did, I checked my email, and there was an email from him, and he was like, "Hey, man, I need to do this like two hours early. Is that possible? Like, if not, no big deal. But I really do, and and I didn't, I couldn't do that, you know, and and I didn't even get it until right before, and. I, in my head, of course, I'm paranoid and thinking, like, was he annoyed with me and mad at me that I didn't reschedule? And I'm like, well, you know, it was the day of. That's what I thought, too, because at the beginning, it was kind of like nice, sweet, little, imaginative Jonathan telling you about his world of novels. But then it felt a little passive aggressive there at the at the end, eating. I don't know what that was. Yeah, I, I, I sort of felt maybe that could be the case, too, but I don't want to assume those things. You know, I just want to, yeah. I want to assume that he was just hungry and, exactly. that, and that he wasn't mad at me. <laughs> to continue on our dark note of the evening, oh. it makes me think of, Julia listens to these podcasts. Well, I listen to them, too, but, like, she got me hooked on them. 
And, and like, wait, I got to interrupt you. Uh, okay. ju- your your wife Julia Scoria or Julieta Scoria has been on this program. Yeah, also a writer. Just for listeners who are yeah. not aware. And I keep calling her Julia because Juliet may not be her real name. Right. I don't know if anybody's up on the writing profession, but sometimes <laughs> people people go by no, different names. Right. Yeah. But anyway, she listens to these like murder podcasts, and she's got me hooked on them. And we. We listened to one, it's probably been almost a month ago now, and I have to constantly talk about this with anyone I talk to, which is kind of disturbing. But she listened to one about the original Night Stalker. You ever heard of him? He was this guy in Sacramento, or they believe it was a guy, and um, and he, uh, from the late 70s to like the mid-80s, did all of this fucked up he break into people's houses. He was never caught. So he'd break into people's houses. Uh, typically, um, a rape was involved, and then the husband would be bound and gagged. It was like over 50 of these cases. But anyway, it made me think, because after he would like break into your house and fuck up your life forever, he would go in your kitchen, and he would eat all your food. Isn't that strange? That is strange. It's like, it's like marking his territory or some sort of act of... Yeah. Uh, of uh what is it like a signature or something right well i think some of the investigators too are thinking a lot that was like the key to the case that maybe he was like he was like uh you know diabetic or something or you know maybe <laughs> maybe he had to eat eat in that way but it's yeah yeah i like you know when you're like a little boy or uh and you get like so scared that you can't even move right well one night we're listening and this was like a multi-part it's like a 10-part series and so we're on like part six, and it's not it's not getting any nicer. And like I was so afraid in the bed that I swear to God, like I couldn't move. And Julia, she was like breathing heavily; she was already asleep. So uh, yeah, that shit fucks with me, man. I, I feel like I've got I've gotten uh, less able to tolerate stories of that kind of human darkness as I've gotten older. And uh, I, I've said this before: becoming a parent, I think that has had made you know made me more sensitive to the evils of the world. Yeah, that's like my only rule with the podcast. I can't, I can't take like the kid murder stuff. Right. But what I was going to say, what was weird is this original Night Stalker. Not only would he like destroy your life, but then like a week later, he would call your house, and there are like these voice uh, recordings of him calling people after and before as well, where he would like talk into the phone like. I'm going to kill you, Brad. I'm going to kill you. It was so, it's so creepy. Like, yeah. it's like, it's so creepy. Um, but, but anyway. Yeah, that's fucked Let's just up. keep getting dark. <laughs> let's just, <laughs> let's just, let's just keep pushing it. Let's spiral. Let's spiral. Uh, so what about other stories of mutilation? Anything else that we need to cover in that realm before we move on? I mean, we've gotten, you know, I guess we... We left West Virginia. We went to to California, but uh, yeah. anything growing up, like people getting like losing limbs, or yeah, there was. See, we lived in Raynell, which is it used to be home to the largest hardwood sawmill in the world. Uh, I can tell you're impressed, <laughs> and and so like there were guys walking around who didn't have arms, or like they were missing a hand. Like that was just like a normal part of of everyday life. Um, and there was a, there was a guy who, uh, Johnny, I can't remember his last, Partain, Johnny Partain. And he would always sell you tickets to the, to the Catholic spaghetti dinner in the fall. But he was an old man when I knew him. But I guess when he was a young man, he was pulling green chain and got his arm ripped off. 
and then he smoked a cigarette. Maybe I'm maybe I'm fucking up the stories. <laughs> yeah, like he he like went over and sat down and just like smoked a cigarette. I wrote that's in one of the story books. I fictionalize it, of course, but uh, but yeah, yeah, like uh, you know, human mutilation. It's it's kind of uh, our state motto in some but, way. Like the presence of mind to like you lose a you lose a foot or a hand or whatever the case may be, and then the first thing you do is just light a cigarette. Like I have yeah. great, I have a lot of admiration for that in a way. Yeah, or they're really addicted to cigarettes. <laughs> I mean, just I think uh, I mean most people would probably just pass out or you know go into some kind of shock. Maybe that is a function of being in shock. You just yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, when, when I was in ninth grade, I used to play football and um, had a compound fracture of my left arm. It was not like a bad compound fracture, but it was just like where the my my forearm looked like like an L. That's that's how bad I left. I, I tripped and I like my arm my arm came up underneath my shoulder pads and it broke the arm. And in this horrible fashion that, um, like, I could hear like the trainers who came out on the field like they were gagging because like that was like sickening them. But I can remember looking down at it and thinking to myself, "Oh, cool! Like I broke my arm. Like I've never had a broken bone before. Like this must be what a broken arm looks like." And of course, it wasn't. You know, it was this freak arm that had uh, been created through. Uh, through the injury, but yeah, I can I can remember for probably a good half hour, you know, I was I wasn't really feeling any pain, and when they put me in the ambulance, the bad thing about West Virginia is like if something goes wrong, like you ha- once the ambulance gets there, that means that you're just kind of like maybe halfway through the story, <laughs> or or maybe even just like a, a fourth of the way through the story, because then you have to drive for like an hour. Right. To get to like a clinic or a hospital where they can treat something like, like a broken like a broken bone. That's fucked. Grandpa, That's yeah. fucked up, dude. I, I, it's making me think of uh, I was in Italy, and when I was just out of college, I did like the backpacking thing, and I was in this uh, small town in like Cinque Terre, Italy. I think it was you know one of those cliffside villages with all the pastel, yeah. pastel buildings or houses or whatever perched on a cliff. And there are all these, you know, it's all, nothing but like college kids basically in this town in the summer. And uh, there was a girl, a young girl, and she was with some guys. I think they were like Italian guys. And I, I was nearby, and I could see that they were flirting. And then it was like we're going to go cliff jumping, and we're going to jump into the water. And this girl jumped, and she landed wrong, and like seriously fucked herself up. And I remember standing there watching the whole thing, and then watching. Like the entire emergency process happened in this like steep, tiny yeah. cliffside village, and it took forever. And then it was like loaded, and they didn't know what they were doing. And it was like I, that part of it was the most like uh, nerve wracking part was just like watching the slow motion response and like how are we going to get this girl to a hospital and do we need to get her to the top of the mountain for a helicopter and people yeah. speaking in different languages. It was crazy. Yeah. yeah, my grandfather had a heart attack one time because at that point. You had to go to Lomore, Lomore, which is near, well, I guess it's down towards Roanoke. So it would have probably been like, I don't know, two and a half, three-hour drive at that point in time back in the 1950s or whenever he had it. And he just sat on his porch like after he had it. He's like, I'm not getting in the truck to or get in the ambulance they called to drive all the way there just for him to tell me I, I had a heart attack. <laughs> I, I have a, When you mentioned the, the girl with her injury, it made me think that um, – we used to attend uh, – they'd have, like, high school wrestling is really big in southern West Virginia. 
And where I went to high school, Greenbrier West, like there were some guys who were just amazing. You know, they won, they, you know, the school would win state championships. And we went to this um, like meet. They let us out of school on Friday to go to the meet. And one of our wrestlers, he was a Franklin boy. He like suplexed this guy from another school, the Richwood Lumberjacks, I want to say. And dislocated the guy's shoulder right in front of everybody. And the whole entire crowd just sort of gasped. And then they started kind of cheering almost. (laughs) Blood sport. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. exactly. By by the way, dislocating a shoulder is painful. The guy on the ground must have been... Oh, yeah. He was was screaming. He was crying. I think his mom was there and she came out. It was one of those those, uh, ordeals. Yeah, I mean, like people, it's a... It's weird how much people, uh, even people who are nonviolent and who claim to abhor violence, there's something about the spectacle of violence that draws people in. Whether it's like, I think of car crashes at like the Indy 500 when I was growing up. Oh, like, yeah, for sure. People love that shit. Or like an injury, uh, like a boxing match, like the knockout punch. Like it's just, it's brutal. And yeah. uh, it should it should sicken us more, should it not? Or, you know? uh, I don't know. I think maybe the act of witnessing uh, some act of violence maybe provide something to uh to the community on maybe a collective level yeah uh, but like where's the line you know yeah yeah for sure so uh what else has happened today what if i knew what if i knew where the line was i, <laughs> I mean <laughs> and i was able to define for you right at that moment where the line was and that problem was solved for the rest of your life i <laughs> would I, I would be so happy all i ever want is for people to tell me where the line is Right, Scott McClanahan said in other people episode three hundred and whatever. What episodes this going to be? Four hundred and seventy-three. Yeah. Oh man, you've done some podcasts, haven't you? Yeah, Gracious it's a, it's a yeah. big, it's a big problem. I got to work it out with a shrink at some point, but you know, <laughs> six years, baby. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever thought? It made me think, though, as we were going to have to re-record this. It made me think, like, if you. Th- have you ever? It would be like maybe a neat little avant-garde little podcast, you know, where you almost kind of re-record them again and again until you kind of like a movie director. I'm thinking like you know, Robert Bresson, right? He'd record the same take of an actor, you know, 400, 500 times, and it's like Kubrick. Yeah, yeah, for this, sure. Yeah. The, ladies and gentlemen uh, who are listening to this episode, this is the director's cut of my interview with Scott McClanahan. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, one thing that I've thought of doing is, uh, like interspersing interview, like doing like episodes, uh, you know, during the week where I just turn on the microphone and just talk, but that just seems so indulgent. Yeah. And and then I, you know, a long time I've, uh, for a long time I've, I've entertained the idea of, of going out into the field, which I would love to do, but just the time and energy that it requires with the, the other demands of my life. It just hasn't been practical yet, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So I don't know. But, you you know, we were talking yesterday. This is something we discussed yesterday, which is that you're going to potentially tow the waters of podcasting. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested in, like, uh, the form. It sounds so pretentious that I'm calling it a... I'm calling it a form uh, <laughs> <laughs> at, uh, at this point. Like, I think, th- I think there's something there. Just, like, on a narrative level, I think maybe listening to... So many of these podcasts. I had somebody. What was that? Was a station out there? KCRW. Yeah. They did a couple years ago. They took one of my stories and turned it into like a little radio play. The idea is this: I have a bunch of stories 
that I don't think I'm going to use that are all about like the fights that I've got into with Julia, and we've had some doozies. Um, and I'm and I'm not uh, again saying that you should uh, fight with your significant other in order to fuel your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> don't try don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> That's right, but I think it's I think it's simple enough. And my friend Chris Oxley, I do a lot of these things with. You know, he's a he's a kind of uh, public public television guy, sound guy. And so, you know, I think we have just simple enough in terms of the elements, the voices, you know, a narration with possibly also, you know, voices uh, almost kind of acting out. I don't know, for like four or five minutes, something something like that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess, you know, just the kind of concept of like, you know, the audio, the audio novel. Um, there may be something there may be something there. I'm kind of it's kind of uh, it's something that I feel kind of. Uh, building like i like i should do well but of course typically with these projects you do one of them and it's like oh that's a bad idea well but, but you know there i think there's something to it because i think that you as a storyteller uh as a writer and a storyteller but especially as a storyteller uh have a lot of um ability in the realm of uh like the oral tradition like like yeah. telling stories like not all writers have that a lot of writers are great on the page but they're not great at verbalizing a story you can really tell a story yeah, I have plenty of like high school wrestlers getting their shoulder separated stories. <laughs> Maybe that's what the podcast should be about. I could call it like athletes, <laughs> or just like people getting maimed. The stories right. of maiming. I was thinking about. Do you remember that show uh, Rescue Nine One One with William Shatner? Yeah, I could be like the Shatner of the athletes, and then I could <laughs> I could tell about their. Their horrible injury and <laughs> describe in great, great detail how their mothers weeped over uh, the bodies of their of her sons and daughters. So. What about uh, did you ever listen to S Town that podcast you and Julia listened? Yeah, to? yeah, I, I liked S Town. I did. I liked it. I feel like there is something I, for some reason. Just now, it popped into my head. There's something uh, about John B. Mclemore. And you that resonate together. Maybe it's just like the like. I feel like you guys are. <laughs> bear with me though. Bear with me. I think there is something at least in terms of storytelling, verbal facility. Um, there's the obvious. You know, you guys are both uh, have a bit of a southern accent. Yeah. But yeah. like incredibly well read. And yeah. uh, do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how there's no. like maybe a resonance or like or like some some sort of uh, parallel thing happening? It makes me think that maybe this analogy is true. Maybe for the sake of other people to boost the ratings, I could like commit suicide <laughs> <laughs> after this podcast episode. I'll come on. I'll come on after the uh, after the interview's right. over. My closing statement. I'll be like after like like seconds after hanging up with me. That's right. he called it. He called. <laughs> but you did like you did like S Town. Yeah, I did. And also, too, like my dad, for some reason, my dad was like, you know, worked at Kroger. He was like a produce manager and, you know, threw around like, you know, big, big bags of potatoes and this kind of union guy and, you know, uh, hates Trump, as I mentioned uh, yesterday. And he also sounds sort of like a, a Mississippi bluesman from like the like 1920s, 1930s. I don't. I probably shouldn't do an. I feel like I'm. Uh, I'm exploiting him here if I were to do the, to do the imp- impression. But um, oh shit, what the hell was it? Oh, he's into clocks now. He retired, right? And he'd done all of the. You know, he was so active 
his entire life, and then he turns 60, and now he's just into clocks and watches. Like, my mom, I'll say, like, well, what's, like, I'll talk to her on the phone. I was like, what, what's dad doing? She's like, he's just in there at the computer, and he's looking at watches, right? <laughs> and I guess she goes to the bathroom, and then we'll be in the bathroom for a few minutes and comes back and passes the door where their computer's at. And I look, I look in there, and he's just still looking at watches. Because he looks at them on the internet, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so yeah, see, there's another connection. That's connection number two after the suicide. Well, <laughs> let, me, uh, let me tell you something. Lately, I've had this weird thing where, like, I cannot stop looking at border collies on the internet. I'm, I'm obsessed, like on my phone while I'm rocking my son to sleep, like while I'm at work, I'm like peeking at like puppy photos. I'm looking at puppies for yeah. a good hour to, you know, hour and 20 a day, I would bet when you, when you add it all up, can't fall asleep. Like if I, if I wake up in the middle of the night, need to fall back asleep, I'm looking at puppies. Like, what does that yeah. say? What does that say about my psyche right now? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> We, we have a dog. We got a dog last. It's a California dog, which is a very California thing to do, which is, I guess, well, we flew to San Diego to go to the shelter, pick up the puppy, and then we brought the puppy all the way back to uh, West Virginia. And um, she's she's a good dog. I've never been a dog person. I've always, uh, but I like her. Uh, but uh, I've never really, I had a dog as a kid. But it was a dog that we called Buddy. I was in like the fourth grade, and this dog just showed up on our porch one morning. It was a Sunday morning. We were getting ready to go to church, I remember. And there was Buddy on our porch, and he hung around for a good like three, four months. And then he just took off again. And he's like a hobo dog because he had like all these other fam. I found out. This is this is where I, uh, I felt as if I'd been cheated on by the, by the dog as a young man because he had he would like hang out at a house for a couple of months and then move on he came back to our house once but then he left again so i don't know if that like messed me up with uh with dogs or uh you got, you got like abandonment issues yeah maybe so what we kind, always had cats we were like cat people what kind of dog you have now it's i don't know it's like uh i don't know it's like a poodle it's part poodle part mutt it's real cute yeah kind of, it's like a kind of looks like a possum in the eyes. She gets this glazed over look in her eye a lot of times, and she just goes into possum mode. But uh, she, she's a good dog. I'm super cool. Like, I talked about mama grass. I talked about, I talked about my dog. This is the, the domestic life of a writer. That's it, man. Yeah. Have you ever heard that Winston Churchill quote? Because he didn't really care for dogs either. Uh, he had, like, pigs all the time, I guess. Especially in like in his later life, and he said that um, a cat will look down on you, a dog will look up to you, but a pig will look you right in the eye. I don't doubt so, it. I don't doubt yeah, it. Pig, pigs are smarter than almost every dog, or I think maybe every dog. They're they're a smart animal. Yeah, yeah, for sure. My grandma used to have hogs out behind her place, and uh, when I was a boy, she got rid of them though. After a while, but yeah, I guess they always had animals, and the Clanahans did growing up like that. They, like my dad hates pork, for instance. Like, I guess it just like brings back memories of like you know, slaughtering pigs. So. Oh, it's gnarly. It's uh. He's also against Thanksgiving for like the same reason. I'd like your dad. <laughs> I'd get. Along, I would get along with that man. 
<laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> so what about church? You mentioned church. Uh, I'm curious to know what your spiritual situation was and is and, and if there was any kind of evolution uh, from childhood to adulthood. Oh, yeah, well, I guess, like, I grew up in what was called the Church of Christ. I want to sound real crazy now, people know. The Church of Christ, they used to be called the Disciples of Christ. It's like a non-denominational church where you, the one good thing is, like, you actually, you actually, like, read the the text, right? You actually read the, the book, you know, our Sunday morning worship's taken up by, um, Bible study as you know half of it and then you sing a couple songs and then like you know the preacher gets up there to make his $80 for the Sunday and he preaches for like 15 minutes so I always grew up in church like one of my earliest memories is we had a our church building at the time didn't have like indoor plumbing like one of my earliest memories is like going with my mom out to like you know, Johnny house I guess outdoor toilet whatever you want to call them but we call them Johnny houses here and uh and going out there and the windows were open because it was summertime and i remember she had a yellow dress on like this yellow dress and um and i could hear the voices from the church singing the hymn coming out of the out of the windows and that's like one of my really nice uh childhood childhood memories but i don't know you know i was i guess i was i was like hyper religious in some ways like i almost felt I had like a Joan of Arc experience with uh, with religion, and you know I went through. I remember I got I got baptized like really early, especially even for Church of Christ, um, because they you know you have to have knowledge of sin and et cetera et cetera you know according to uh, New Testament. So, but I was still baptized at like eleven, I want to say, because I'd had a classmate who died in a car crash with her mother, and I didn't like that was like an obsession. Like each night when I'd go to bed, it's like I don't want to go to you know hell without being baptized because i'll probably get killed in a car accident with my mom you know that sort of childhood type thinking but you know i was i don't know i was like i was a big believer in uh in uh in all that stuff but a believer in it in like a completely different way than what people think there's such cliches and stereotypes about uh you know about religion or religious uh religious people so wait, when they when they uh, when they baptize you, they baptize you in a river? Uh, no, I could have had that option. Like you, it's like a restaurant. You check uh, the river <laughs> Creek baptism. But no, we had a baptistry in the church by that point in time, which is like this giant like bathtub in the church. Right. And you'd get down in the bathtub, but I remember there was like green stuff, green stuff in the bottom of uh, the baptistry. I guess you know it gets algae and and things and, and once it's been there you know year in year out with you know water it's like cool. and, gotta uh, get yeah, some chlorine yeah, yeah you have to be like immersed in baptism according to you know the church of christ like we're not like you know those methodists you know who just do a little sprinkling or, or whatever you want to make sure our place in heaven is secure but i'm an atheist now but like you know religions religions uh, you know serves purpose uh, yeah like, okay so you're an atheist now what do you... I don't even know if I'm an atheist. Like it's one of those, you know, I guess even to, it's. I feel like I'm in this Aristotelian sort of dialogue where you can't really call yourself like an atheist because then that means that the idea of God exists. Like the the non the non entity means that it must come from some entity. If that makes any sort of uh, philosophy 101. Well, but it also becomes atheism to me. Also, often backslides into. 
uh, dogmatism and like really yeah, exactly. s- strong belief. And uh, like that's that's where it starts to become the mirror image of the thing it professes to refute, you know? Yeah, I guess right now I would say my like spiritual makeup is like I would I want I want there to be an afterlife so that uh, the atheist uh, has to be confronted by the fact that they were wrong in their life. Right. With some sort of deity. But I would also like the flip side of that. So that the believer and the righteous uh, is confronted by some sort of deity who then sends them to hell. So, so I'm like, I'm like, uh, I, yeah, maybe, maybe, I'm maybe still big into the big into the hell concept. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like, especially if you've been indoctrinated at all with a religion, and I, I use indoctrinated lightly, like not like some menacing thing, but if you've just been, yeah. if you've been through a religious education, uh, from a young age, it's it's hard to entirely shake it. Like, it really embeds itself. That stuff is powerful. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, even with, you know, the, I mean, I love, I love the church. I mean, the church of Christ is incredibly, you know, backwards and ridiculous, like, you know, any sort of, any sort of belief system usually is, you know, you know, extended to the to the nth degree but you know there are elements of the of the church that um you know i encountered you know once i started reading you know i can remember a bible study teacher who um somebody was asking him you know the concept of time which is like you know so important to you know uh, baptists and you know uh, book of revelation and you know the devil being you know entrapped for however many thousands of years well you know actually you know saint augustine solved the problem there's a verse i think in corinthians or maybe second peter where you know a thousand years is to god as one day is a thousand years you know the the concept of time is meaningless to uh to a deity and so i think that the book like i mean if i were to go back to that church not that i ever do um but like the the rituals are still like really powerful emotionally uh to me and i guess the fact that you know i spent my childhood I spent my childhood there, and uh, uh, you know they they still hold they still hold some sort of weight. And, the, and that you know the book, right? I mean that's one of the great great novels, right? Uh, that's uh, you know that's ever that's ever been written. And you can read it like you know this strange postmodern sort of text. You know Song of Solomon. You know you can stream of consciousness technique, right? Uh, the darkness of the you know book of ecclesiastes well again you're you know you're going to find that and i don't know louis Celine, right the for the french writer or the multiple points of view of the same story well that's you know faulkner like i mean this um so the so the stories within the within the text um you know are still important to me there's a you know the nikos kazanstakis novel last temptation of christ which is an amazing book uh, you know, when we're Christ, you know, he has this last temptation. He's going to live this normal life of, you know, this, uh, you know, this stonemason carpenter, however you want to interpret the translation. You know, he he's alive, right? The the crucifixion did not happen, and he appears before Peter, and um, you know, he says Peter's uh, not pre- Peter, excuse me, Paul, and Paul's preaching about this Christ character and. He tells Paul, he's like, "That's me, right? That's who I am. I was that person." And of course, in the novel, you know, the Cosmostakis novel, you know, Paul says, "I don't care, right? Uh, you're not the the story's true, right? You're not true." Um, so yeah, oh, man, we were, we were going all over the place. Here. No, but it's interesting. I mean, have you have you read the Bible? Have you like, have you actually read it as a book? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
Wow. See, like you're like the, the second person I know that I've talked to who's actually read the book, and I. Oh yeah, it's uh, Sunday morning is New Testament Bible study. Uh, Sunday evening, you're in a different part of the New Testament, like you do um, Gospel Sunday morning, Sunday evening epistles, and then like Wednesday evening would be Old Testament. Uh, Bibles. Then, of course, the Old Testament's not important to the to the Church of Christ. But that was your um, that was your upbringing. Yeah, that was my upbringing. And my parents are incredibly, I think, progressive. You know, liberal people and liberal liberal in uh, their thinking. My mother used to <laughs> your mother used to tell me this sounds so horrible now that I remember it. But I found it in uh, uh, Descartes a couple months ago. It was just kind of popped out at me, which is she was like, well, you know. If, I was like, well, I don't know if I believe in this. You know, imagine being, you know, 13 years old. It's like, I don't believe in any of this stuff. Mom is, you know, this shit's stupid, you know, or however you talk to your mom when you're 13. She's like, and I remember her telling me, well, if you're a betting person, right, what's the what's the hurt, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, you know, Christian Christian thinkers of, uh, and non-Christian thinkers have, uh, have been uh, have been battling, uh, battling with that, uh you know, with that issue uh, since the writing of the book, I read a great book. Maybe, maybe I've, gosh, again, how uncool is this too? This is the, now he's now he's talking about church. <laughs> well, but let me ask you this: since you're since you're no longer uh, a believer and no longer a churchgoer, uh, what is, what was the break? Was it just a, a natural function of getting older and, and yeah, thinking about think, it? Or? I think you realize everything's a racket at the end of the day, right? And, and uh, maybe that's maybe that's a cynical sort of way of uh, looking at things, but most things are. Um, and of course, if you look up, uh, I have that in the Sarah book. If you look up cynicism, it says a deep and profound understanding of human nature. Right? We always usually use the term typically, typically as a as a negative. So yeah, you know, you you realize it's it's just a trap. Like like everything is a is a trap in this world. These you know, dot citrus drop extreme sodas that are in the case. Or yeah, how many? How, how many have you put? How many? About soda. How many of you? How many of you put back today? Oh, I don't know, because I mowed the grass. So I, pr- I probably had to get like extra, extra yeah. energy. Yeah. And I, I don't really tweet. Like I just like retweet, like the sh- like you know, buy my shit type tweets. Right. So I think it's really truly like the spiritual function of of that platform. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, the one great tweet that I tweeted back in the day was, uh, did you know that our bodies was, are made up of 90% Mountain Dew? That was like my one, my one good tweet. <laughs> well, because uh, if I said Citrus Drop Extreme Soda, nobody would understand that it's the Kroger generic brand of Mountain Dew. So Is it, just, is it more know. powerful than Mountain Dew? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But it's like with anything. Like I don't know, you know, you know if you're... Yeah, when you're drunk, right? You, I'd always drink like Coors Light, like a, the morning, like that was my morning beer, because it's like real, it's almost like drinking water. But sometimes if you just like change brands, like it'll fuck you up. Like you think you're gonna drink your watery Coors Light, and before you know it, it's you know eight thirty, and you, and you have to go to work that day, right? And it's really kind of hit you, <laughs> rather, <laughs> rather than uh, rather than the you know, the typical, typical uh, thing to put yourself to sleep with at, at night. Uh, so here's what I'm thinking. Uh, I, I don't know why this popped into my head, but it's, it's, it's back to religion for a moment. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to indulge me because I'm with you on, you know, a lot of the, uh, 
I don't know, just the bullshit, the traps, the supernatural promises that really don't bear uh, very much scrutiny at all. And at the same time, I find myself drawn by uh, a lot of Buddhist teaching. Like I find a lot of like really like sound logic and comfort in it. And, and, and like speaking of rituals, like the ritual of meditation, um, that, that helps me, you know what I'm saying? Just like, just a stopping, like no belief really, but a do like a thing to do as a way of observing, uh, what's going on inside of me or whatever, and, and dealing with suffering in a, in a calmer way or something. But I read a book earlier this year called, uh, I think it's called the woman in the cave, something like that. But it's about like the first Western Buddhist nun Sounds to, dirty. To be, <laughs> to, be uh, to be fully ordained. And uh, her name's Tenzin Palmo, and she spent 12 years living alone in a cave in the Himalayas at 12,000 feet. She slept sitting up in, like, this meditation box, I guess, that, like, helps you maintain your posture while you sleep. But, I mean, like, just the most, like, it's the, it's the most, like, unthinkable thing for just about anybody to be alone in a cave at that altitude uh, by yourself for 12 years of your life. Yeah. But the the anecdote that just popped into my head when we were talking about uh, religion and death and you know all that it entails is that uh, she had this guru, you know, in the way that, uh, you know, monks and s- spiritual seekers at that level of intensity usually do. And yeah. she, she goes to, uh, I guess it was India or Nepal or, you know, something like that. I, I, I can't remember the exact place, but she goes to this monastery to, to, you know, become a nun or at least to explore it. And she talks about meeting her guru and how, when she saw him, she like burst into tears. And it's like this really powerful experience that it was immediate recognition. His wisdom enveloped her. Like she had known him for millennia, like all this shit that I want to believe so badly. And yet I have never even come close to having this kind of experience in my life. Like not even like a whisper of this, which can make me feel deficient. And then, you know, just to press fast forward, the woman uh, or the guru winds up dying and it's very sad for her. I think, did he, I can't remember. I think he died before she went into the cave. But uh, when he died, his body was, uh, you know, left in uh, repose or whatever for a period of a day or two or three or whatever it was. And apparently when you're uh, in the Buddhist tradition, they believe that the, that people of a a serious um, level of spiritual achievement or attainment or whatever, when they die, they kind of know how to die while maintaining a certain level of uh, equanimity and awareness. And his body shrank post-mortem down to the size of like a child to the point where like eventually all that was left was his hair and his nails. Oh gosh. Which is disgusting. (laughs) But also like I found myself reading this and this woman sounds nothing but, uh, sober. You know what I'm saying? Like just like the most rational person, uh, on the page possible. But then she's like telling you this and you're going, this has got to be bullshit, right? Like it it can't be. I'd want the guy to shrink like even small, like to be like a little tchotchke. Carry that guru around. <laughs> Got a guru in your pocket. I think that's the next big thing. Or just collect his hair and nails off the. I mean, just like. Well, not, not to bring it back to mob, like mob bringing, but you know, there's a whole you know kind of discipline within you know the Christian tradition of uh, you know Christ, you know the concept of the missing years, uh, and you find so many of those things that you know those um, Christ-like sayings from the Gospels that you know you can find in 
you know, the Tao Te Ching or, uh, you know, uh, Confucius's dial- dialects or, um, um, you know, that, that possibly, you know, that possibly, you know, there was this journey to the east, uh, so to speak, um, you know, where, you know, he probably encountered. Now, of course, probably the reality is if this individual actually existed, you know, he's living in, you know, the area of Galilee, right? You're right on the Silk Road during the Roman Empire. So you're having this kind of exchange of these ideas going uh, going back and forth at the, at the same time, same time. So, well, but yeah. I, I read that, I think I read that in like a Tom Robbins novel, but like, it's a pretty, yeah. it's a pretty convinced. Yeah, there's, there's, t- there's tons of that. And there's usually like, they're usually kind of people who have had, you know, uh, or at least trying to, I guess we could say maybe trying to place their Buddhism together with their, with their Christianity, you know, the Gnostic gospels, if you're a Gnostic Christian, I mean, I would say that, you know, spiritually speaking, you're just, you're just a step away basically uh, from you know basic sort of Buddhist teachings and the Gospel of Thomas, which is which is a gospel that's you know excised. Um, Lane Pagels writes about this quite a bit, you know, of you know Christ getting mad at his at his disciples and saying, you know, well, God is within you, right? Uh, that you find that within you know that's kind of still silent voice inside your own existence, you know, kind of eliminating this monotheistic sort of concept of you know a Godhead or omnipotent omnipresent omnipowerful sort of deity yeah i gotta read the gnostic gospels like i've read yeah. a, i've read a little bit about them but i haven't like actually dug into that have you done that i've yeah i've went i've went through them there's a couple of them they're beautiful there's uh uh the uh gospel of mary mary magdalene which is from uh the point of view of uh females you know you know women even the new testament tradition which i guess i think's changing right um you know, Christ after resurrection, you know, who does he appear to for the first time? He appears before the women, right? And the women are then going back and preaching that story for the first time to these doubting dudes that have been fucking hanging out with him for the past couple of years. There's a great book that just came out this year by this uh, French writer. He's like the greatest. I think he's I think he's one of the top five best writers in the world. Uh, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but Emmanuel Carrier. I believe it's a book called The Kingdom, uh, in which um, well, he's one of these writers. He combines memoir with history, with these kind of third-person novelistic sort of uh, sort of techniques. Um, but yeah, that book's kind of all kind of all about that sort of the way that these books are are made, right? And uh, the way that these books are are written and produced for uh, for a readership. All right. Well, let's, uh, you know, I want to make sure I get to the Sarah book a little bit before we, uh, we sign off. So I thought that what would be interesting since the Sarah book is about, uh, the dissolution of a marriage and a relationship is, uh, would talk to you about relationships and talk to you about like, what do you think makes a relationship, uh, work? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's a question, uh, that was on that's on the mind of pretty much everybody it's a struggle that most human beings engage in whether it's like trying to make a friendship work or an intimate relationship work but human relations are hard yeah um well to maybe go back to uh that famous uh i guess he wasn't a buddhist was he i was thinking of george harrison's widow and that scorsese documentary and um they asked her, you know, how do you make a relationship work or how do you how do you make a marriage work? And she's like, 
there's just one rule. You, you don't break up. You don't get divorced. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I think there, I think there's something, something to that. I have no clue though, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. I could, I could solve another big issue. Couldn't I for like, man, <laughs> this is where I want you to draw the line for me. Just, just, <laughs> this is my, honestly, this is the mission. This is my entire life encapsulated right here. This is it. I just yeah. want somebody to give me the fucking rules. Just write it down. Just tell me I what mean, to do. Yeah, wouldn't this be scary though? If I maybe I have the answer, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but what wouldn't it be horrible? Like if I told you right now, and then tomorrow you you abandon your family. Like that, <laughs> that, that would that would not be that would not be what we what we want or need. Right? Yeah. Well, but you uh, you, yeah, you I, spent you spent a whole book thinking about this, ruminating on it, examining it, fictionalizing it. Like, did you learn anything about uh, what makes a relationship go south or what makes a relationship, um, you know, I, I guess you say just stick it out. But I mean, is there anything else you found in there? Well, I'm, I want to come back to Jonathan Safran Foyer, right? Because he's kind of written, I guess we can say kind of an end of a relationship book, right? But he kind of is connecting it to... I don't know, world events, right, or apocalyptic, cataclysmic events. And to paraphrase Freud, I guess, sometimes a divorce is just a divorce. And uh, and, it's, and it's maybe that simple. And within the book, like, I think I, think I throw out about 30 separate ideas that I've, most of them I've stolen. There's a wonderful book by um, the French writer uh, Stendhal that Penguin republished as On Love is the name of it. And again, it's this weird early 19th century book that is almost works as manifesto, as uh, rules, as story. It's, it's kind of real postmodern. Um, he even has there's waves well, in uh, his memoir that he that he wrote. He'd, he'd even do this thing where he's like, the next couple of anecdotes are really boring, so you can skip a couple of pages uh, if you want. You won't you won't miss anything. Which is <laughs> There's a technique that I want to use. <laughs> like maybe start on page one saying that you can like skip the next uh, 212 or however many pages. Well, Dave Egger, uh, Dave Eggers did that in the, in the preface to a heartbreaking work. I mean, I think... Oh yeah, that's right. Yes. And wonder if he stole it from Stendhal. We should, we should out him tonight. On <laughs> as being a plagiarist. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess I kind of throw out a ton of stuff there. Uh, and and I guess at the end of the you know the end of the day too um you know the, a novel works very differently than self help or at least the good ones do I believe you know you synthesis and or you know thesis and antithesis in some way synthesis but usually that synthesis is kind of a contradiction of you know the thesis that you've uh, that you've kind of presupposed or have uh, brought up. Um, so yeah, I guess that it has a ton of little contradictions that are, that are throughout it. Um, that, yeah, I hope, you know, I hope people, hope people read the book and maybe get a hold of the contradictions more than if I were to kind of spell them out, um, here on the, on the show. As if there's the, there's a whole readership of Sarah book, uh, um, readers who are just, they're waiting for the book to be, to be explained. <laughs> To be explained to them, right? They're still here at the, at the 55th minute of the. Have you ever? Do you have any sort of data on that of how long people listen to your podcast? Uh, I don't. Uh, maybe I could. I, you know, I'm. This is the, here's a here's a secret about me. 
I'm not a guy who obsesses about his analytics. Like people ask me questions and like, I honestly got to go look, I, I forget to look. Um, is that bad? I guess I should care more. I, I just don't even pay attention, but I think like, I don't think there is really accurate podcast analytic data about how long people are listening, but I could be, it could be wrong. Excuse me. That was another dot citrus tropics. Oh, please stay. I want you to stay caffeinated. I also have a kombucha here, though, too. So Just, it'll all, it all balance it <laughs> out. My addictive personality, I can't stop drinking these kombuchas now. I used to make fun of them. but They're good. Man, they're delicious. I fucking so, love yeah, them. It sounds, now it sounds as if like I've dodged your question completely. No, but I get um, it. I get it. I get wanting people to read the book and to not want to have to sit there and, and decode it. I guess like... I didn't know if like you'd arrived at any deeper understanding. Like whenever I like, I, I try not to give advice as a general rule, especially about something like uh, you know how to how to do an intimate relationship. But like, if I'm ever talking about uh, an intimate like, intimate relationships or somebody just got engaged or you know something like something like that, like the one piece, the one thing I always say is that relationships tend to work when both parties are approaching it from uh, a the perspective of giving versus like, what can I get? Uh, yeah. the, you know what I'm saying? Like if you have like that generous, like how can I give to this thing versus like, I need, I need, I need like, that's when things sort of tip though. I say that and I can also, you know, I can immediately contradict myself and say, well, you know what? Sometimes a person is hurting and they do fucking need and they can't give, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I, th I think also too, within, I think I have an answer for you. Okay. Thank the God. Shine, the light's shining down. Um, <laughs> you know, with, within, with, uh, with in the book, we, we always look at the you know we think about your relationships ending. You know there are th I think the Sarah character in the book talks about uh, there was a book that came out a couple of years ago that was you know d uh, a book about the number of divorces that we have today, which was looking at it from a very practical sort of uh, sort of angle, which is people are living longer. Right? Uh, if you are married to your spouse in you know 1680. You know, your husband's going to be dead when he's 25. Like, you only have to stay married to him uh, for seven, eight years, and you're probably going to have another experience or another uh, relationship uh, within that. So we're dealing with all these kind of practical aspects here within, you know, the modern world. And as much as, you know, as important as my relationship is with uh, with Julia and as much as I've got my shit together... Um, there is also the notion that um, there's a Norman Mailer quote that, you know, I've, I've really only known the people that I've uh, broken up with. People I've, sorry to quote a misogynist here at the end of it. <laughs> this, is, this is for the misogynist uh, part of your uh, listening, listenership. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he said, he said essentially, you know, you really, you really only know the person that you've went through that final experience of a relationship with, which is, you know, the, the dissolution or the end of the so-called, you know, romantic uh, part of the relationship. So there's, you know, there's a depth of understanding um, that, that you have even through that incredibly painful experience that even, that even the relationship you current, you currently have, um, you know, doesn't have the same number of edges to it, right? Now, of course, I want to do on a daily basis the things that maintain, you know, grow and uh, use an Oprah-type language here to speak. <laughs> I'm starting. Uh, I'm yeah. starting to tear up here. 
Yeah, to maintain that relationship, uh, which is you know revolutionized uh, my life. You know, by the end of by the end of that book, um, the Scott character is no longer Scott, right? The Scott character is wearing the Sarah character's clothes, and in the very next chapter, the Scott character looks at his face, and his face is no longer Scott. Like the thing that the thing that kind of, um, you know, that creates the most pain in your life in some ways, you know, change it changes you and, and vice versa for, uh, for the, for the opposite, uh, person, uh, within the, within the relationship, uh, as well as, um, so, so yeah. And I guess I have kind of taken a little bit of shit, I think from people on Goodreads that there is that sort of, I don't think it's a hopeful. It's just the, re- it's just the reality of being a human being, right? The suffering that, other human beings put you through is what kind of makes you who you are uh, at the at the end of uh, the day. Not necessarily that you're going to gain any wisdom from that, or you're going to gain any sort of you know understanding because of that pain. It's just pain. Uh, but yeah, it has uh, it has kind of uh, melded you. You know, the book deals with the idea of the person, which I'm getting ready to read uh, Catherine Lacey's new novel, and I saw it in the Dwight Garner review, you know, that, you know, I think she touches on that concept of the idea of the person as well. And we, I think we typically uh, think of that as like a negative, right? You have this idea of the person. Well, that's, that's a reality of any human relationship, right? The idea of the person's incredibly important. Um, I think in this, in the book, I think I poo-poo it a little bit more uh, than, than that, but yeah, that's, there's that old Robert Burns poem, right? To a louse, right? And you know, if, if you know, we could see ourselves as other people see ourselves, and that's part of a relationship. That other, that other person, um, that other person seeing themselves in you. That mirror effect that is so wonderful uh, about human sexuality and human communication, and uh, and uh, you know, making somebody laugh. Damn, man, and, and yeah, and it's making me think too, like. We have no idea, or maybe some idea, but not a clear idea of what uh, or how other people see us. That's that's fucking that's yeah, fucked up. Yeah, that's fucked sure. up. Fucked up to think about how you have such because I have you can easily fall into this thing where you have such a fixed idea about how everybody sees you, and the truth is you really have not much idea at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And with that, you know, even these kind of highfalutin kind of BS, you know the feel like 13 year old scott back at church right where <laughs> you know want to call bullshit on a lot of this stuff right. maybe it comes down to the fact that i really get a kick my ego it does my ego a world of good when i can make julia laugh like maybe it's something more animalistic and simple simple you know i, I like the way she smells right yeah. and uh and it's something that's uh that's beyond this sort of way that we have these ideas and these ideals about uh, about uh, relationships. There's a great uh, Goethe novel called Elective Affinities, uh, in which that's the very almost thesis of the book that love is nothing more than chemistry, right? In which for a period of time you're attracted to this uh, molecular structure, and then something occurs within the molecular structure in which you're no longer uh, at- attracted to um, something very kind of dull and simple and science-like. Um, but yeah, beautiful, though, too. 
And like, yeah, not entirely on like, there's some bit of truth in that, but it also seems, it also makes me sort of ache. Cause it's like this, like brings to mind how like ephemeral it is like this chemical reaction that like flares up and then burns out. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking back towards, you know, like, you know, some of these things that we've talked about, you know, the, you know, various Vedas and, you know, you perfect, you know, in the Hindu tradition, you know, you perfect your love of God through the love of something, you know, other, other than your, than yourself. Um, yeah. And I think that, I think it's all part of that to, to sound in, incredibly, uh, revolting and uh kind of kind of place your place your finger in your in your throat and do a throw up that's what my kids have got into here recently they like to pretend they're throwing up and then they laugh (laughs) my daughter it's a great face yeah she was uh she's turned into this amazing storyteller and uh she's on the autism spectrum and uh but anyway we're driving back from she likes to go to McDonald's on Saturday, and then we go to the Rupert Public Library, and you have to drive like 15 minutes to get to the Rupert Public Library. And on the way back, well, she'll always tell us a story. Well, all of her stories now, which I guess is the world of a six-year-old, right, or seven-year-old, like vomits like a big event in your life. Yeah. Like when you throw up the big event, so this is that's usually always the dramatic sort of climax uh, of her story. And she was telling a story about I was. I was over at my friend's house one day, and uh, we were playing playing basketball and, and enjoying a enjoying a fun game together. When all of a sudden, my stomach started hurting. And then she goes and she said that she threw up, but she threw up in the basketball hoop, and she <laughs> scored a basket with her throw up basketball, and she won the game. And that's the way the story ended. And so I thought there's something like powerful about that story, right? That uh. Like, you know, it took me, that's that Picasso idea, you know, it took me 50 years to learn how to draw like a child. Like, man, I was like, that's a damn good story, Iris. <laughs> like, maybe I just steal that shit off of you right now, put it in a book. Right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, last thing I want to talk to you about is guilt. Uh, you had a Christian upbringing. Uh, that, like, a lot of times, you know, you develop a certain relationship with guilt and. Uh, I guess we all have some degree of it, but is is this something that Scott McClanahan uh, wrestles with? Do you do you have a lot of personal feelings of guilt? Do you get tied up in that, or are you somebody who uh, is able to kind of uh, I don't know, like look at it and move on? Yeah, I guess uh, for some reason I'm not going to quote Norma Mailer again, even if the <laughs> misogynist part of your audience loves it. But that's he said that's the reason why people had affairs was the guilt, right? That it was the existential kind of, um, you know, the existential sort of side of, uh, you know, the affair was the guilt, that that was the third participant, right, within the infidelity. But separate and apart from that, I'm just talking, I've had too much caffeine, I'm talking about (laughs) crap. But separate, separate and apart from that, yeah, I have tons of guilt. And like, you think you don't, like, I think you don't, but like, you know, you, you, you find yourself like here I am. I'm thirty you know what I've been feeling guilty about like recently? Like I'm feeling guilty about I've always done this thing with my writing career where like I like I take a gun and then I like take my foot and then I like take the gun and shoot it directly at my foot. Like I've <laughs> like I've always I've always kind of done that thing. And I think that now that, you know, I'm not 
drunk and, you know, living this sober life. You know, I see that, yeah, that it's the reason why I've done that is because I think that, you know, I have a lot of guilt and shame that I don't know necessarily if it comes from me, like my church experience. Because, you know, my church experience was, you know, treasures treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. And I mean that in a metaphorical way. We don't want people going uh, yuck to, uh, to the Bible verses here. But, uh, you know, there's some truth in that, right? Like all this shit that you surround yourself with, it's meaningless. And all this crap that you have. Like right now I'm sitting in this room and I'm looking at this sweeper. And I'm looking at a pair of khaki pants on top of this sweeper. And I'm looking at this little table that Julia has next to this bed up here in the guest room. And that's a bunch of shit, right? It's gonna, it's material that will disappear with, with Tom, right? In the same way that I will be non-existent. You know, that stupid fucking sweeper is gonna be non-existent, uh, as well. But, um, it exists, right? The treasures of, treasures of, uh, of Earth are nice and, in some ways, by being a writer, you're only chasing after kind of the treasures of Earth through this kind of spiritual medium of uh, writing, of telling stories, of making your poem, of writing your song, of making a podcast or, or making a film uh, or whatever. And so, yeah, like I feel like just intense, like something horrible is going to happen uh, or like I'm going to I'm going to get my comeuppance like the Orson Welles, Magnificent Ambersons, right? And, um, and that's a real, I think that's a real pathetic way to kind of lead your life. Um, and I think that I, I've allowed that to kind of, to kind of lead my life in a number of, a number of different ways, uh, even as an adult, right? Even as a, even as a 30, you know, 39 year old dude, you know, I still have that shame that I feel about things, right? That kind of. And I know, I mean, it's all different angles, you know, if, you know, the readers of Hill William, you know, will probably understand too, like I have the shame of that, I have like the shame of of flesh and the shame of, uh, and maybe I can simplify it, I need to get back to saying something funny. The Village Voice, there was a story in The Village Voice uh, last week or a week before or something. Well, anyway, Julie and I went to New York on uh, Thursday of last week to go up for the book release party, and I did a reading with Darcy, and a bunch of people came, and it was super wonderful, you know, and everybody was great, and it was great to see people and all that, but, you know, at the same time, I was telling Julie, it's like, can I not, like, uh, enjoy life, right? Uh, can I not, like, overthink this to turn something into a bad situation? So anyway, we finally picked up a copy of the village voice, and maybe this there's something wonderful about this uh, too. I'm reaching for the copy that we picked up, uh, which is maybe that great cosmic joke that we don't want uh, to be played on ourselves. If you look to the table of contents on page 56, you know how like in newspapers and magazines they have like the little sidebar and it tells you what the story's about. Yeah. And on page it says 55 books. And but underneath it, there's this little thing that says, and Julia put this up on our um, board today. Uh, Sad man writes book, regretting his many bad choices. <laughs> <laughs> and so, isn't it wonderful, right? You spend all this time, you take yourself so seriously, and you know, you you put all this sweat and toil and stuff into this into these little things that you make. And at the end of the day, somebody, that's, that's the book, right? Like it kind of sums it 
sums it up in a real sort of comical in a comical sort of sort of way like i want that like on my tombstone or make it my facebook uh wallpaper or whatever sad man writes book regretting his many bad decisions <laughs> well, uh, on that note i can't think of a better note to wrap up on <laughs> Uh, thank you for doing this twice. Uh, I apologize for the technical difficulties we experienced yesterday. I'm glad actually to have had a second chance to talk with you. It's always fun. Yeah, it was better. I think it was better. Yeah, we. Well, I, I felt like the, there was a pressure. This is it. You know, we can't. Yeah, we can't. Exactly. I can't fuck this up twice. I'm telling you that Bersan idea of like the podcast that you make somebody do like. 40 times might be interesting <laughs> if we did this over and over and over again i wonder if eventually we would figure this whole fucking bullshit out we'd get like we'd figure out where the line is on everything <laughs> <laughs> or you could take it to the uh, this is almost like a short story developing like you take your podcasting to the extent that you're like writing the dialogue for the person on the other end to speak right <laughs> there's a there's a great uh Borre story we'll end on this uh, i think it's called pierre menard and it's about this guy who's obsessed with Don Quixote, but he's never read Don Quixote. But he's decided to live his life in this, you know, 1590, 1605 sort of sense, reading all of these chivalric romances, so that he can then write the Don Quixote that we all know word for word, but without reading it, to have the same sort of experience that Cervantes has. And so to the point that, I guess, Borges asked, the, it's kind of the question of what's the greater art, right? The original that existed from this person or the second time around, the person who went through as much of an experience as they possibly could. Again, it doesn't make much sense as a story uh, of the original author to recreate the same exact story sentence by sentence, word for word. Uh, reproducing uh, Don Quixote. And I don't think we probably have the answer like most things. <laughs> well, uh, on that note, Scott, okay. it is, uh, it's always great to talk to you. Congratulations uh, on the Sarah book. Uh, I think it is your breakout novel. I'm going to just say that. I'm glad that we, that we got to uh, spotlight it in the TMB book club. And uh, we look forward to whatever comes next, whether it's these podcasts or it's another book or uh, whatever it is. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Brad. This is fun. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. That is Scott McClanahan, his new novel, The Sarah Book, available now from Tyrant Books. It is the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Go get your copy. You can find Scott on Twitter. His handle there is at Scott McClanahan. You can find uh, him on Facebook, I believe. You can check him out at hollerpresents.com. I think I have that right. He's on the internet. Scott McClanahan, The Sarah Book. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. This podcast is entirely free. All episodes are free. 473 episodes and counting. Everything's free. It's a listener-supported show. That's the deal now. So if you like the show, you want to support it, throw a couple of bucks in the hat. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. This podcast also has its own official app. The other people with Brad Listy app is available wherever you get your apps. It too is entirely free. It's the best way to listen. Get the app, get it on your phone. It's great. 
It's easy. New episodes automatically upload. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. It's very user-friendly. So good talking with Scott. I could just talk to him. But I'm not going to talk about what's happening right now in the news. Not going to talk about that. It's very tempting. (laughs) As perhaps you can uh, discern. I'm not going to do it. Just going to let this unfold, see what happens. And by the way, uh, I'm not gloating here. We don't know what's going to happen. The outcome is not certain, but like the dominoes keep falling. One would think that things are now escalating. But what will that mean if uh, people in positions of consequence don't behave appropriately? July 10th, 2017. It feels like a pivot point. I know, like, everyone keeps waiting for the pivot point. Like, this this is it, this is it. This has got to be it, right? If this is not it, what is it? For fuck's sake. I need a pivot point. I need 2017 to pivot. I'm not going to talk about it.